Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. My patron, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, US dollars a month, and this will give you an extra bonus episode per month, ad-free content, 24 hours early access to the episode. You can get a patron shout-out. I can also maybe get some ad-hoc podcast episodes that I might release during the month. And you'll also get some free stickers that I'll send to you in the post. If you're interested in that, head to patreon.com and forward slash winging it travel podcast and you'll find me there hope you enjoy the podcast thanks for listening and supporting this and i'll see you soon cheers james thanks for listening let's get into the episode hello and welcome to the winging it travel podcast and this week i'm joined by francois paradis and he's currently in islamabad in pakistan hitchhiking the country so we're going to talk about that country today and the main part of this podcast is i want to hear about his trip to afghanistan this year which was featured on bbc urdu should be a great chat Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, as I said, where are you currently? You're in Islamabad, right? That's right. I'm currently in Islamabad, the capital of, uh, of Pakistan. And how long have you been in Pakistan for? So, I arrived in September, and then I spent about three months. I left Afghanistan in December, came back uh, early March, and then I've been here uh, ever since early March. So, it's been almost, I think, almost six months in total. Wow, that's a good chunk of time for a country, isn't it? You can really see quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, I've been here for a very long time. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't planned to stay that long. I initially thought I would just stay, you know, two months, three months. But there's just so much to see, so many different regions. Every province is diverse, different ethnic groups, different um, landscapes. So there's always something new to see, and it's a really fabulous country. I would say definitely in my top three. Wow. And I think I've had a few episodes recently about Pakistan. So we'll come to more about Pakistan later in a podcast episode. But the the scenery looks incredible. When I was in India, someone was travelled to Pakistan. They got into India, believe it or not. I think we we're talking pre-recording about the difficulties there. And they were showing yeah. me pictures of the like the Hindu Kush and that sort of area. And I was like, wow, that looks incredible. Yeah, the mountains are breathtaking. It's, uh, it's a gorgeous place. Okay. And also another question for you is, do you think long-term travel is the best way i'm gonna go straight in here early question in terms of slow travel because you can really see a country right because obviously you're hitchhiking so i guess there's no real rush to go to a place or you can take your time right yeah exactly the only rush would be if i have visa um constraints like the expiry date is coming near then i have to rush but uh, otherwise you're right you know when you're hitchhiking you can't really rush because you have to go with the flow and see how fast you can move uh, but yeah, to answer your question, I think I do think slow travel is uh, the best way to see a country because it really takes time. You know, people mm. sometimes think, okay, I'll, I'll just fly into Islamabad, stay for two or three days, and maybe take a train to Lahore, stay for a weekend, and then leave, and boom, I've seen Pakistan. But like everybody's got their own threshold and their own benchmark. But for me, you know, I would say benchmark is if you meet somebody. Uh, when you're home in Canada and you meet, I meet somebody from Pakistan and I have a chat with them. If I can sustain a conversation 
pretty deeply about their country mm-hmm. and they're quite impressed with my knowledge of their country, that's for me an indicator that I've spent uh, long enough in the place because I actually know it. You know, so that's usually what I like when I talk to people about a place I've been to and they're from there. You know, usually if they say, oh, wow, like you really know the place a lot. Uh, you've seen almost more of it than me. Then I feel like, OK, I've, I've devoted enough time to that destination. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that, actually. Yeah, because people just dip in. Obviously, like you said, depends on people's situations. But yeah, people just dip in for maybe a week or 10 days or two weeks. And and this is a real small country. Yeah, you're never really going to know it or talk about it in depth because you just kind of dotted around on the surface, really. And I think this also is why you're probably one of the first people, maybe even the first I've had in, on the podcast that I've, I've interviewed whilst traveling. So it's quite a, we're, we're new territory here, which I've never been before, which is really exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And I, I became aware of you because obviously I saw on the Facebook group, is it Passport My Stamp? You put a post about traveling to Afghanistan, which we'll come to in a bit. And I watched your video with the BBC Urdu, like, like a mini documentary about your, your time in Afghanistan. And I was like, wow, like I was just so impressed. So yeah, nice one. Thank you. Can we start with just a little bit about your history of, of why you're into travel? Was there a period in time in your life where you want to travel? Did it did something switch? Did you have an idea when you're younger? Like what was the point where travel became quite a strong thing for you? All right. So first it started with my family when I was younger as a child, my Parents would drive down to Florida um, through the entire eastern coast of the of the states, and I was just a child, and I was always excited every time around Christmas when we'd go uh, drive down the states to Florida. You know, I always remember you leave in Quebec. There's snow; it's cold, and <laughs> as you get further south and further south, it gets warmer. The landscape changes, and then around Virginia, there would be no snow anymore. And then you know, you keep going; it gets warmer, warmer, and then eventually we would arrive in. Florida and, you know, palm trees and sunny beaches. And I think that's where the travel bug got me. You know, I really started, I always loved these family trips, especially long road trips, yeah. just looking out the window for hours and hours. And I, I really loved it. You know, it was, so I think that's where it started. Um, but then my first real solo trip was in 2017. I was 18. I had some savings from working, some odd jobs. And I thought, let's go to Europe for, you know, six weeks. I'd seen some blogs of backpackers online, but I'd never backpacked myself. Mm-hmm. But I thought, oh, it's really cool. Like all these people are going to Europe. They seem to have a great time. So I flew to Luxembourg and then I spent six weeks in Central Europe, uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, and so forth. And that's when I really had a click because I met all these incredible travelers who, you know, been cycling in India, uh, camping in Oman, Peru. And that's when I realized, wow, like there's a whole subculture of people who on a budget everywhere. And that trip really changed my life. It was summer of 2017. And that's when I realized, well, first, I didn't even know at the time that you couldn't travel, that you could travel outside the West. So all my parents, friends and, you know, people from school, they would always go to like Paris, Italy. But I had never met people going to Peru or Oman. So after that trip, I realized, okay, well, it's possible to go outside of the West to all these countries. And the second thing is it's possible to do it cheaply because I meet people that were camping or hitchhiking, um, even some were dumpster diving. And I realized actually money is not really an issue. If you're willing to rough it out, you can go almost anywhere on any budget. So that's how I became a traveler. Yeah, you, you made a great point there about the subculture. That's what I found when I first went in 2013, that you're meeting the people in the same boat as you, like you say, maybe on a budget, 
in a hostel or trying to save money as much as they can, but also still having a good time. And it kind of opened my eyes as well. So yeah, I can hear what you're saying there. And also a great point about, yeah, we can all travel to Western countries. Of course, it's uh, it's pretty easy. But yeah, when you when you dip into that first country that's not westernized, it probably gives you that hit, right? So was that Sudan or was there another country before that where it's non-Western? So, so essentially, the first Europe trip, like just to put things in perspective, just going to Europe, as yeah. an Indian, I was terrified to go by myself. And that's yeah. like, you know, westernized. It's, it's Germany for having like, you know, super westernized, good infrastructure, completely terrified. But then in Europe, um, these people sort of give me inspiration. I thought, okay, you know, I, I love Europe. It's a great place. And what I noticed is in, in the Balkans, so Serbia, Bosnia, mm-hmm. I would meet travelers that were more sort of hardcore and more interesting than in, let's say, Germany or uh, Luxembourg. So the more of the beaten path the countries in Europe, the more interesting the travelers were. So then I thought, oh, man, if these travelers are really interesting to meet in, in Bosnia and Serbia, you know, the hostels, people there are, they have better stories. They're just, yeah. I find them more interesting. I thought, okay, what, what kind of travelers can I meet if I go to China next year? So then the next year, flew to China by myself. Again, pretty scared. You know, I don't speak Chinese. I knew mm-hmm. it was going to be hard. And then I did sort of China, Central Asia, like Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, oh, wow. Japan, Korea. And again, the same pattern, the more sort of hot core of the beat of path, of the beaten path to place, the more the travelers that I meet would be really interesting. So in China, I would meet people that had been living there for months and months, learning the language. Uh, they, they really knew the culture well. They, they knew the place, you know, in depth. And then I thought, wow, like, okay, let's go to Africa the year after that. So then in 2019, <laughs> I went to Egypt and my plan was to overland from Egypt to uh, Ethiopia. Yeah. So that was 2019. And that was, I guess that's like following the Nile down, right? You can follow Nile all the way down to Ethiopia, right? I think. Exactly. But that's amazing. Yeah. You you just mentioned a whole list of countries that I would probably want to ask you about, but maybe on another episode, if you're willing to come back on, um, because the stands that you mentioned, I, I talked about this in the last episode I re- released this week. That is an area that I would love to hear more about, especially from a backpacker point of view, and especially from someone mm-hmm. who's done it recently. So I'm going to park that thought and uh, I'll speak to you after the episode. But yeah, that's great. And that's awesome that you early doors got out there. Do you think as soon as you do that Kazakhstan or uh, like a China where it's completely out of your comfort zone, do you think it then gets a bit easier to go to any other country? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's true. There's a sort of, um, your, your body adapts while your mind adapts to it. So, um, it's kind of a funny analogy, but just like going to the gym, you know, if you, if you sort of start with slow, little weights and then you put heavier and heavier weights, your body will adapt. Yeah. You can't just go in directly and lift, you know, 500 pounds. Well, it's kind of the same. Uh, if you had told me in 2017, before I went to Germany, yeah. in five years, we'll be hitchhiking Afghanistan Taliban, <laughs> I would have been like, you're completely crazy. I would have thought <laughs> you were mad. But what happens is you do Europe by yourself, then you realize, well, okay, actually, you know, I can do that. Let's try China and East Asia. Then you do it and you're like, wow, well, actually, if I can survive in China, I could probably survive in Central Asia. Then you do that. You survive. You're like, okay, let's try Egypt, then Sudan. And then you realize, you know, you gain confidence over time and it becomes easier and easier. Uh, so I, I think you're absolutely right. You have to expose yourself to 
um, these difficult countries that are mm. less westernized, more communication problems, uh, logistical problems. And once you sort of, um, it's kind of, like, kind of like a video game, you know, you pass level one, then you get to level yeah. two and so forth. Awesome. And how did you plan to do your travels? Did you work in Canada for a bit and then save money, then go? Was that your sort of Pretty um, idea? Pretty much. I was lucky enough to live at my parents' place, so I could save more and I would work, you know, uh, random jobs like security guards or English teacher in a private academy, things like that. And it was, it was possible for me to save. So I was just living very cheaply in Canada and just saving as much as I could and then planning my trips. Yeah, because I had this question yesterday, actually, someone asked me on Twitter about how how do people go for like six months? Like, I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, how do they afford it? Like, what's their income whilst they travel or how do they, they do that? I'm like, well, I think it's just, so there's different factors here, right? Like you say, you lived with your parents, you worked and you can save money. And there's also your age and like responsibilities for some people. Like if you're in your late thirties, it might be a bit more difficult because you've maybe got kids or a house. There's certain different stuff in there that that kind of affects your way of travel. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, but to give you an example, because people often you know wonder like, oh, how is it possible? But I've, mm. I've never owned a car, never. Uh, I would go to work with my bike, even if it's raining, even if it's cold, you know, uh, even if I have to bike like 40 minutes one way, 40 minutes back. So I've never compromised in travel. You know, if if to be able to afford it, it means that I have to. You know, not on. I'm the guy that doesn't have a car, and, and I don't know about Vancouver, but in Quebec, where I'm from, like everybody's expected to get a car when they become yeah. an adult. You know, yeah. but I never did that because I thought, you know what, you know, like, if I can go to work with my bike and take the bus during the winter when it's too snowy, you know, that's fine because the money I can save there will afford my trip to Tajikistan, to Uzbekistan, to Egypt. So. It's about choices, you know, do you eat out every week or do you eat at home and eventually yeah. you manage to, to save more? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I love, I love that. And I think also my friend coined the phrase, she's from Vancouver, actually. She said that it's about how many wants you have. Like you say, do you want to go like eating out every week? Well, if you want to, then you're going to do it. But if you don't need to, you know, save $40 and then like you say, over 10 weeks that's 400 dollars saved for your trip right so yeah there's there's different things you can take off your real life to maybe save that money and some people are, re are really good with that some people are not and i think that's dependent on what your real aim is i think especially with travel exactly so it's, about, it's all about sacrifices yeah um, yeah okay and let's delve into afghanistan before afghanistan i guess you're in pakistan right going into afghanistan is that right that's right so i was i was just traveling uh, pakistan and Hiking mountains, the north is absolutely beautiful. And I learned that the all the consulates of Afghanistan in Pakistan, which there's four of, Quetta, yeah. Karachi, Islamabad, and Peshawar, I heard that all four had um, were now being managed by the Taliban themselves, which is, I think at the time, it was the only country. All the other embassies and consulates around the world of Afghanistan were still run by the previous government, the previous administration. So that made me think, well, you know what? I thought, hmm, well, first off, the war is over. So theoretically, it should be safer now because, yeah. you know, there's no bullets flying around. So that's one thing. No more war, which technically means more safe and more peaceful. Number two, they're now running the embassies in Pakistan, which means if I get a visa from here, from this country, yeah. if there's one place in the world I want to get my visa of Afghanistan from, it's here because yeah. at least it's legitimate. It's from their, their, their guys. 
So I sort of think about it. I'm like, okay, let's go to the to the consulate and see what what they say. I walk in, chat with a guy, whatever, and just explain my dream of wanting to go to different countries. I show him my stamps of having been to Sudan, Ethiopia, and a few other countries. And he, you know, he saw, okay, this guy's a world travel guy. He's been to many places. So he's like, yeah, sure. I'll give you the visa and just fill out a form, give money. And then I asked him, I said, hey, like, you know, uh, can I meet the you know, Taliban consul here? I'm a little worried about going there. You know, I don't know how they're going to react to it. Yeah, a traveler from a former NATO country, you know, how are you guys going to react? So I meet the guy with the Taliban flag in the office in the consulate in Peshawar. And, you know, I said, like, I just want to know if it's fine. If I go, like, am I supposed to be worried or what's going to happen? And the guy translated for him because he doesn't speak English. He speaks yeah. Pashto. And he said, yeah, no, it's fine. You'll be the, you'll be the guest of, of, uh, of, of Afghans. We're happy that you're going. It's great. You'll end up hospitality. You'll enjoy it. You're more than welcome. We completely approve of your trip. Uh, we're happy that you're going. So again, when, you wow. know, you'll see the pattern when I always talk to you about butterflies changing into a sort of a calmness. I've yeah, talked yeah. about that in Egypt. Again, same pattern. It's, it's a common pattern in my travels. Complete 180. Hey, this Taliban council who's, you know, big guy in shower telling me that I'm welcome. Don't worry about it. Have a great journey. Enjoy it. It, it calms you down and it makes you more confident. So at that point I knew, okay, it's, it's doable. If, if he's reacting like this, then yeah. it's doable. Yeah. I guess that gives you almost a green light to go in. And was your plan to be hitchhiking as well in Afghanistan? Was that your plan? So great question. So I thought to myself, okay, I'll do an exception because usually I hitchhike in most countries that I go to. Yeah. Before going, I thought, no, okay, that's going to be an exception. In Afghanistan, I won't do it because, you know, I'm a bit scared of um, what can happen, you know. Yeah. So I thought, okay, that'll be an exception. So I did take a shared taxi from the border to Kabul. But the thing is, once I was in the country and I realized, well, actually, you know, it's not more dangerous than many places I've been to before. The situation is sure a little, you know, Hands because of the recent takeover, but it's not, you know, a civil war or it's, it's not that dangerous either. I thought, okay, let's try to hitchhike. So I, <laughs> I hitchhike. even though I, I had not planned initially, I was like, no, no, that's the one rule. I won't do it because whatever. Once you're in the country, you feel more confident. You see the reality on the ground. You realize that shops are running as normal businesses. People are trading, you know, it has this sort of normality to it. Mm. So I ended up hitchhiking, which again, great adventure with truckers. And, you know, again, just put yourself in, in, in the mind of an Afghan trucker. You're on the road, this guy gestures and you're taking him into your truck. You start speaking in your local language, expecting him to reply. And it turns out it's a foreigner who doesn't speak a word <laughs> of the language. It's they're amazed, but they're happy. They take selfies, they're happy, they call their friends, they take pictures with you. You're making their day. And I could just see this guy was just so happy because I'm probably the only Canadian he'll ever meet in his whole life, let alone Westerner, you know? So it was a great experience. Yeah, and you obviously featured on BBC Urdu for this. How did that come about? Did they realize that you were hitchhiking in Afghanistan maybe into your trip or was it planned or...? How did that come about? So, okay, so essentially, okay, I'll try to make the story sort of short, but essentially when I was in Afghanistan, in a particular region, I was hitchhiking at night, 
See, that's when sometimes you have to not be too cocky, not too confident. Maybe I was too confident. Um, so I'm in a place called Herat, yeah. and I'm going to Farah. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I'll try to make it quick. I'm hitching at night. I get dropped off at a Taliban checkpoint, but it's you know pitch dark, 12 and like midnight. Um, it's a very remote area. They've never seen foreigners except for NATO soldiers. Yeah. They see me coming out with my hat, like hitchhiking at night. Like, what the heck is going on? They do check my documents and everything. Huge communication problems. They don't speak a word of English. I don't speak a word of the language. And because it's at night, and that's what I learned, like, in the daytime, it would be fine. But because it's nighttime, they become a bit more like, oh, what's going on? They call their um, leaders, like, what are we supposed to do with this guy? Mm. And, you know, the leaders are not there. I can't talk to them. I can't... Um, you're powerless. When, that's what I learned. As soon as these guys, any country, whether it's Sudan or elsewhere, once they take their phone and they make phone calls, you've lost. Because you can't use your skills or your, yeah. your soft skills. You can't talk to the guy in front of you anymore because the, the decision is being made in an office somewhere far away from where you are. Mm-hmm. And they decide, okay, we don't know who this guy is. Let's just see if he's got the right doc. Is he really a tourist like he says he is? So long story short, I sort of got semi-detained, semi-hosted for free in their base. Like being, I'm, you know, free bed, free food. They're treating me really well. Like I'm, there's no handcuffs and, you know, I'm with them eating the chicken and food, but I just can't leave the base. Yeah. When this happened, a Canadian journalist learned about it through, I don't know what, like some sort of channel maybe, or I think uh, he has contacts. And this guy, uh, he's from Global News. And he published a story on national television and he twisted the story. I don't know how this guy got that. He twisted the story and he sort of um, implied that they had stopped me because I had links with ISIS, which is complete bollocks. Oh, complete wow. bollocks. And when, yeah. it, when this happens, and I like it has nothing to do with that. I, the only thing was that I was hitchhiking at night, which is obviously unusual. They were like, who the hell is this guy? But at no point did they ever mention ISIS. It was just sort of we don't know what a tourist is. We've never seen a Western tourist in this region. We want to check his documents. Is he actually yeah. a spy or tourist or whatever? Um, but this guy just spent this weird story. And then my name gets associated with ISIS. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, this guy is complete mental. You know, what? Like he, he's a, really, it's a foolish decision. So then I thought, okay, I have to sort of, you know, show the real story I mean, show that I was here as a traveler, as a tourist. So then I contacted some uh, Afghan journalists and they did a small video of me in Afghanistan. Mm. And then one of them had a friend across into Pakistan. So when I went back to Pakistan, um, I did the interview that you saw with BBC Urdu. So it was sort of just, um, how do you say it in English? Set the clock straight? Oh, yeah. Um, set the record straight? Yeah, record. set the record straight. Yeah. Exactly, set the record straight. Because obviously it damages your reputation when people and yes. false call. And the, the funny thing is, because I've given you like a brief overview of the story, but the funny thing is, from day one when I was in Kabul, uh, I was actually, when, when you're a foreigner and you go there, they have to clear you. Like that was their policy at the time. They have to investigate to give you a security clearance. Okay, you're good. You can go around the country. Mm. And they did that to me. So the secret police of the Taliban, I met them on day one in Kabul. They had my WhatsApp number. I had their contact. I was completely cleared. They had already looked at my phone, my bag, yeah. my photos. 
I was completely clear from day one. So when this guy made this outrageous claim, and I was like, it's complete, you know, falsehood because they had already investigated me. They knew who mm. I was, but there's communication issues. So the place I was in Afghanistan is not Switzerland. You know, every province is sort of disconnected yeah. and has its local warlord. So just because the central authority knows who you are, doesn't mean that this, the guys in the small villages, you know, know uh, who you are. So that's why point. I did the BBC Urdu thing. It was to set the record straight. Yeah. And actually, the video turned out to be like a bit of a promotion of traveling to Afghanistan, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it is almost. I mean, I don't know if promotion is the right word, but it's definitely showing people that it's uh, that it's possible. But yeah, it, you know, it's, yeah. again, a bad thing becomes a good thing because I think if that guy had not, you know, published a foolish story, the Canadian journalist, I probably wouldn't have uh, thought of doing the interview. Because yeah. I was, I'm always with my trips. I don't even have an Instagram account, or mm. I don't really publish on social media. Whether I'm in Europe, China, I just sort of do them for my do the trips for my own sake. But because of that, I felt compelled to, you know, speak and do an interview. And in yeah. in retrospect, it was good because that's why I'm here on the podcast now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the video gives the impression. I know there's obviously a lot of different thoughts about the Taban, etc., but. It gives the impression that it is possible to travel there, um, maybe for males. I'm not sure about females, but it is possible. Right. So it does give that sort of impression that maybe if you really want to go there, you can do it. And I guess you found that the generic person on the street was okay in Afghanistan. They're really helpful and helping you hitchhike around the country. Oh, yeah, they're really, really helpful. Like the truck driver was like that I talked about. That was from Kabul to Mazari Sharif in the north. Extremely, extremely helpful. Um, you know, people would, if you need directions, they'll take their time to, to guide you. Um, if your phone is out of battery and you need to make a phone call, people will help. Very, very nice. Uh, but again, people will say like, oh, you're saying this about every country, so you must be exaggerating, but I'm not. It's, it's either two things. It's either that every country I've chosen to go to recently has been, you know, <laughs> a country that's hospitable, which is possible. Or maybe it's my attitude, the way that I behave uh, makes people more willing to, to help. I'm not sure, but, you know, either way, I would say Afghanistan is up there with Sudan as having one of the nicest um, population. You know, every time I would be on a bus, because I did take some buses uh, here and there, especially after yeah. the detention, I thought, okay, you know, that happened. Now people falsely link me with ISIS. I might as well take buses. I don't want to be detained. <laughs> so... After that, I would take buses, and every single time I was on the bus, the passenger next to me would ask me, hey, like, first of all, I'm really happy you're coming. It's amazing that you're here. I'm so happy that you're visiting Afghanistan, and it makes me proud of my country that we're having foreign visitors. If you don't know where to stay in the next town we're going to, please mm. come to my home. I've got, a, I've got a guest room. You can come in. Oh, wow. And every point, like, like whether it's Kandahar, whether it's Mazar, or whether it's uh, Nimruz, they always offer... And that was just, I've never had a country like this where people in the bus offer to bring you home. And one time they were literally almost fighting as to who would have the right to invite me. That was the time. <laughs> like, yeah. I get out of this bus and there's like four dudes and they're sort of arguing as to who's going to get the right to invite me. So very wow. hospitable people, amazing people. Yeah, I think the, the guest in Afghanistan is, is quite an important thing, right? being a guest is, is quite a high I don't know how to describe it. It, it 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 means something like exactly they see it as an honor and they see it as yes, their duty honor. 
it's basically their duty to protect you. That's the way they, they, they see it. At some point, I was on a call with my mom in the city of Herat, and I'm with my host. And I can see my mom is a little worried, you know, mm -hmm. okay, I just hope you're going to be all right. And like, I hope everything's going to be fine. And I just gave the phone to my host so that she could also speak to him and get a feel of what, what Afghans are like. And this Afghan guy immediately tells my mom, hey, don't worry about Frank. He's with me in Afghanistan. We take care of guests. As long as he's with me, I will do everything in my power to keep him uh, happy, oh, wow. safe, comfortable. And my mom starts crying on the phone while, she's while he's talking to her because she just sees, like it give her the chills. Like she talked to that Afghan guy and she saw the power of that culture yeah. towards me. And she literally couldn't hold it. She just started crying, talking, to the, hearing the Afghan guy it was so powerful for her. Wow. That's a that's a pretty incredible moment. That's insane. Yeah. yeah, your your plan for Afghanistan I saw on your post was to go around basically in a circle, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, because to, to this day, James, I'm still not sure. I, I, I imagine some other people have probably traveled the ring road, but when I Googled it online, couldn't find any trip report of anybody who had done a complete I'm talking about foreign travelers, not Afghans, but foreign travelers who yeah. have done a complete ring road. Uh, because if you think about it, uh, well, first of all, the northwestern portion is unpaved. It's a really, really tough road. But okay. most importantly, before you had the war, so you had Taliban insurgents, checkpoints, yeah. you know, kidnapping, so people wouldn't go. And then before 2001, you had the civil war. It was also hard. Yeah. Then you had the Soviet war. So I don't know if I'm the first one to go there since to do the complete circle since the 70s. But it... If there's been other people, there haven't been that many because I can tell you that the section on, in the northwest between Maimana and uh, Herat, yeah, very, very off the beaten path. Okay. Um, crazy road. I mean, there's no road. You're literally. Did you see the picture on EPS of this jeep going through mountains? Do you, you know what picture I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's the section. Okay. Um, right. So, so you, it's it's a very rough road, and it used to be uh, ambushed during the war. Like Taliban would stop vehicles, so yeah, you know the kidnapping risk was quite high. So I'm I'm still trying to find because like, I don't think I'm the first one, but I I haven't been able to read reports of other people who've done it. And I I was just curious. I thought, oh, maybe maybe it's possible to uh, do it now. Mm. So you went up to around the northwest down to Herat down to Kan Kandahar and back round to Kabul? Was that like the rough circle yeah. in terms of major points? So, so essentially, yeah, from Pakistan, Kabul, Balmian, then back to Kabul, Panjshir, which is a valley north of Kabul, then yeah. Mazari Sharif, near the yeah. Uzbekistan border, then to uh, Maimana, and then after that, along the Turkmenistan border, uh, it's called Badghis province, B-A-D-G-H-I-S. Okay. Yeah, that's the rough. That's actually the poorest province of Afghanistan. There's 34 provinces, and Batfis is considered to be the poorest. Mm -hmm. And I could see why. I mean, very, very bad infrastructure is extreme. When I got to Batfis, I'm not joking, James. The first thing I, I get told when I get there, people ask me, "Are you coming for a polio vaccination campaign?" Oh wow! That's what they thought. I, I asked people if I was coming. I think I asked for pilau, pilau, which is a dish in Afghanistan. It's like yeah, meat with rice. And I asked, like, pilau, like, where can I find pilau to eat? And, and they understood pilau, and they thought polio. Like, they thought <laughs> I was 
coming for vaccination. So that tells you how remote and how few foreigners they've seen. You know, they might have seen some aid workers a few years back, but that was it. Wow. Wow. That is absolutely remote as it gets. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. There was three towns I stayed in in this uh, province. One is uh, Gurmach, Galamurgab, and the third is called Kalainau. Kalainau and in yeah. all three of these towns, every night I stayed in the Taliban base because every time, like I would just get out of the taxi and as soon as I would get out, within five minutes, I'd be detained, investigated, Right, uh, and that's why in my Facebook trip uh, report, you might yep. have seen it. I said to people, "It might be possible to visit Afghanistan, but it's still very difficult. It's not smooth. You will waste a lot of time. You will be investigated. So, it's a very, very hard trip, but also very rewarding." Yeah, was that quite tough getting like detained and questioned all the time? Was that a bit a bit, a bit yeah. tiring? Yeah, you say? it gets to you. It does get to you, especially yeah. when it's been two, three days, and you don't know when you're going to be let free, and you're kind of like, ah. Oh. I was never worried because I never thought that my safety was in danger. But it's more the idea of like, oh, my visa is going to run out. Time is yeah. wasted. I mean, yeah. It wasn't like if I had an unlimited visa of like one year, I wouldn't mind because you know they're they're providing food, they're providing shelter. Okay, what if I just waste time? At least I can. You know, carry on afterwards, but this time it was more like, ah, my visa's gonna run out. You know, every day you you overstay, you've got to pay a ten dollar fee per day. You know, I do want to see the country. I don't want to just do a tour of the Taliban bases. It's not like yeah, a tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what it was really. But luckily, I was lucky, James. I managed to extend my visa. Yeah. Okay, that's how much I loved Afghanistan. After a whole month, came back to Kabul. And I said, hey, I've loved it so much. I want an extra month. I extend it again for another full month. And then mm -hmm. after that, I still felt like I needed more time. So I extended another 10 days. So I ended up spending 70 days in the country and I really loved it. Okay. And what was like maybe some of the best things that you saw or highlight maybe or some highlights or even some tips? So, okay. In terms of tips, um, well, first of all, honestly, I wouldn't necessarily recommend people to go there right now. Uh, not because of danger, as I said, it's not, it's not about getting shot or getting killed. Mm -hmm. It's about time wasted. If you know, you you will be investigated. You will waste time. You will have guys with guns that are talking to you, and you're, you know, if you're not used to that, it can be a very intimidating. Yeah. Depending on what your travel experience is, that's why I would say to people, unless you really know what you're doing and you've had experience, maybe in Sudan or other countries. You know, wait for a bit until they get normalized to tourism and what, what tourism is. Um, in terms of underrated places, I really liked Nimru's province. So Nimru's province is a province that before the 2021 takeover, people would go to Afghanistan, but they would never go there because mm -hmm. the road had a Taliban checkpoint. So people would go to Bamiyan, to Kabul, but they would never go to Nimru's. But now, since they control the country, I thought, hey, let's go there. And it turns out it's this really nice desert with nomads living in the deserts and sort of yurts. Um, and they've got their livestock with them. There's camels. And there's also uh, old fortresses that you can go to in the desert and you can visit them. Mm -hmm. And it was fabulous because I never heard about that. I just said, let's go there and see what there is to see. And the guys, when I get to Nimrod, they're like, oh. Did you know that there's um, this and that castle in the desert that we can go to with our car and we can visit? And I said, wow, I didn't know. And, you know, you go there and you really feel like you're in this raw virgin country. 
because yeah. you get there, there's no other tourists but you and your mates that are driving into the place. There's no fence, there's no barrier, there's no ticket, there's no ticket booth. It's just this random citadel lost in the desert and you can, it's fine ruins obviously, and you can visit it. And I kid you not, I even saw treasure diggers uh, oh, nearby. Wow. That's something I, I thought was only a movie thing. Like yeah. They were literally shovels, like digging for treasures. I've never been to a country that felt as raw and as sort of untouched as Afghanistan. I can't even imagine it. I would expect it as well. Um, but yeah, that's I mean, imagine you're literally at this place. You turn around and you see two guys with shovels digging for treasures. Like, where else are you going to see that? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And that place, where, whereabouts in Afghanistan is that? Just to give a listen. It's bit, called Nimrud. It's at the border of Iran. It's, uh, if you look at a map of Afghanistan, it's the southwest corner. So I don't know if you've got a map yeah, yeah. of Afghanistan in front yeah. of you. It's that little pointy sort of um, sharp corner in the southwest. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. At, the, at the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan and uh, Iran, Iran and Pakistan. And there's like a point where all three countries connect. Yeah, got it. You know that. Wow, that's, that is as far as it gets, isn't it? Like even far, quite far away from the main places. Yeah, it's it's so it's so crazy, James. That I'm not kidding. In that region, as you said, it's so far away. People pay things in Iranian currency, even though you're in Afghanistan. Oh, like they literally pay with Iranian currency because that's what you learn about Afghanistan. It's still quite decentralized, and every region is very unique. Yeah, and because guys are so close to Iran and all because of the trade with Iran, they'd rather just pay in Iranian currency because that's how interconnected with Iran they are. So it's the same country as, as Kabul, but it feels completely different. I mean, I remember we're at the gas station filling up the car and I, I was going to pay for the guys. So I was going to pay for the fuel and I got a bit angry. I was like, oh man, we're in Afghanistan. Like, <laughs> what, what the heck? You guys are paying with Iranian currency. Yeah. Well, like, it's just... That's how decentralized the country is. Every province is completely unique. Maybe that's just a result of the infrastructure, right? It is so vast and also so maybe quite difficult to connect. Maybe it's going to take decades, right? But yeah, I, I can imagine it's just it's, the own provinces have their own thing because, yeah, it's not like you can get a train from Vancouver to Calgary, right? <laughs> I right. mean, these places haven't got the infrastructure to maybe be connected as much. So yeah, that's what makes it maybe quite an interesting place to visit because each province is going to have its own, almost like a culture, right? Exactly. Uh, it's its own culture and its own landscape. So for example, in the southeast, the people near Kandahar, they speak Pashtun and the desert is sort of, it's sort of like a rocky terrain, sort of yeah. desert, but rocky as well. Then in the southwest, the province I was talking to you about, Nimruz, mm. it's sand desert, like, you know, like you think of in Dubai, like, you know, beautiful sand desert. And they speak uh, Iranian, they're Persian. Yeah. If you go to the north, the north is more like, not the northeast, but the northwest. Yeah. Like uh, near the Uzbek border, it's plains. So it's more flat and they speak Uzbek. And every place, every province <laughs> you go to, you know, Bamiyan, it's Bamiyan, uh, the people there have... Uh, Asian features, you might have heard of the Hazara people. Yeah. They're basically de descendants of Mongols and they, their eyes, you can see sort of the Asian feature on it. It's crazy. Every place you go to feels like a new country, especially in the winter. Because in winter, when you drive from Kabul, it's snowy and cold like yeah. Quebec. I literally felt like in Quebec. <laughs> and then you arrive, in, you arrive in the south 
And it, it reminded me of my, remember I told you about my road trips from Quebec to Florida? Yeah, yeah. That's what I felt like in Afghanistan. You go from the north, it's snowy like Quebec, you arrive in the south, you're in Florida. It's literally like this. Is it Nuristan where there's like blonde people? Is that is that the area where you can find That's some right. blonde Afghans? That's right. I, I did not go to Nuristan, unfortunately, because I wanted to extend my visa for a fourth time, but I couldn't. It was limited to three. But in Nuristan, yes, um, I've heard that they have uh, sort of blonde, blue-eyed people. <laughs> but you you will see people that have blue eyes and blonde hair all around Afghanistan, not just in Nuristan. Wow. I think in Nuristan it's particularly present. But I've seen people in Kabul, in Mazar, in Herat, who have even taken pictures, and they've got very. Um, have you seen the picture of a man with a turban on the Facebook group that I posted? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very hard eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. mental. It's, it's it's quite hard to fathom. <laughs> but I think aren't they yeah. descend, aren't they descendants from is it Alexander the Great? Is that right? Um, Back in the day. I'm not exactly sure what the reason is. Uh, I think I think the old Indo-European people, because uh, yeah. the languages they speak in, in Afghanistan, like Pashto, Farsi, these languages are actually distant cousins of, you know, English, German, French. They're all part of the Indo-European languages. So mm. there's some common genetics between people of Europe and people of Afghanistan. That's another thing, James. A lot of people will, like my own family, sometimes. They think Afghanistan is an Arabic country. They believe that it's connected oh. to, but it's got nothing to do with no. Arabic people. And you'll, you'll offend people if you say that. It's, uh, it's an Indo-European country. Their language is more clo- it's closer to French than it is to Arabic. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I think Alexander the Great back in the day, he was on a sort of mission to go to Afghanistan and then he ended up staying, right? So I think that's why there's maybe, is that in terms of um, looks, there's maybe a bit of a culture of people that have got that mix of like yeah, white European yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to them. And you have to remember, right? Afghanistan is on the South world. There's been so many yes. people yeah. coming in and out that there's that mixture of genes. Like I said earlier with the Hazaras, you've got leftovers from the Mongols. You've got people like Alexander the Greek, the Greeks uh, that were there. So it's this sort of mixture of all these different groups that uh, cross the region. And that's why it's so diverse. Totally agree. I'd love to visit one day. It's one of those things that if you say it's like, oh, it's controversial. You want to go to Afghanistan? I know, I get it. There's there's problems there. Yeah, don't like with, with maybe how it's run, whatever. But the real people on the street would love to see you, right? So that's the draw. And when one more thing, you know, James, you say it's controversial, and people you'll say like, oh, people get irritated when you say that. But the funny thing is, there's so many countries that are controversial that people hate yeah. them. I mean, yeah, even, yeah. even I mean, even the states. People will say yeah. that there's institutional problems in America. Yet they'll go there every year on vacation. But you know, people will dislike America's foreign policy or internal affairs or things like that. So every country, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's uh, Brazil with corruption, there's so many countries where people go to on vacation. Yet they know that there's human rights issues, and you know, we can't. I always try to separate politics. Yeah. And uh, travel. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's why arguably no country is off the limits. I think any country exactly. is there to be visited, right? And you're not going to visit the government. You're going to visit the exactly. people. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the big difference, right? If you're like, I'm not going there to like put money into government officials' hands. I'm going there to speak to the real people. Exactly. And, and that's what I said to people that were asking me, like, why are you in there? And, and I said, well, I'm there to meet the people. And, you know... In the end, they're happy that you're coming because, you know, if you don't, who will? Who will come? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. 
So Frank, you have traveled to Pakistan before Afghanistan. So when did you arrive in Pakistan and what was your thinking and plan for your travels there? All right, so I arrived in Pakistan in mid-September 2021. And uh, my idea was to check out the North first because I knew the North was going to get colder as I would uh, spend time in the country. So I wanted to do the North first and then do the South when it would be um, too cold to, to stay in the North. So I first arrived in Islamabad airport. So where's, whereabouts is that in the country, Islamabad? That's pretty far north, right? Uh, yeah, it's pretty far north. It's, um, it's between Punjab and uh, KPK. So it's, it's centrally located to the north of Islamabad. You've got Gilgit-Baltistan, which is essentially Pakistani Kashmir. Yeah. And then you've got Punjab to the south. Uh, KPK, which is like the Pashtun area that's connected to Afghanistan, that's to the west of Islamabad. And then for those who don't know, so there's a few, like in Pakistan, you have Baluchistan, which is the province in the southwest near Iran. You've got Sindh, that's where, that's in the southeast. And that's where Karachi, the biggest city is on the coast. Yeah. And then you have Punjab, the most popular state where there's Lahore and KPK, which is near Afghanistan. Those are, these are the four provinces. You've got Islamabad, which is the uh, capital. It's like an official territory, a bit mm -hmm. like Washington, D.C. Okay. And then you have Gilgit-Baltistan, which is a territory. It's not a province, but it's a territory. And India claims it. Pakistan says it's theirs. Hmm. And uh, you can just call it like Kashmir or Pakistani Kashmir. Okay, yeah. And what, were you planning to hitchhike as well? Was that the plan? Or were you just going to see there and see what the vibe was and then decide how to travel around the country? Yeah, I plan was to to hitchhike. Uh, that's uh, that was what I was planning to to do, and uh, it was it was great. I first started north, um, and beautiful areas went all the way to the border with China. It's called the Hunjara Pass. I think it's the highest land border in the world, if I'm correct. Oh wow! It's four thousand eight hundred meters, <laughs> and that was quite that was quite nice. It was very cold. It might have been in October when I was there. And, um, and and very very uh, very nice place. And then I went through uh, Chitral. I don't know. Have you heard of the Kalash Valley? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Kalash. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful area. They have insane. Their pagan culture. So yeah, it's really nice. They're not Muslim. They have their uh, ancient traditions, and they they drink wine, and they have festivals, and the women dress very nicely. So that was really nice. Spent a few days there. I was lucky enough to attend a Kalash funeral. Uh, somebody oh. had died and uh, someone invited me. They said, hey, you know, if you want to come uh, check it out, you can. Okay. And uh, I went there and it was really interesting. They, it's something like it's, it was different from every other funeral I've ever heard of or seen. Basically, they, they, the body will be um, uh, exposed and then everybody is sort of dancing around a fire and like throwing a party and there's a lot of music and it's going to last for three days, you know, for three days, it's wow. just dancing and, and music and, and, and people drinking. And it's a, it's a very unique uh, ceremony. I really liked it. It's like a celebration of life, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was really different from what I was used to in the West. You know, you kind of mourn when the person dies and it's very, you know, the, the theme is a bit dark and yeah. even the church music is quite sad. But that was completely <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think those sort of situations you get offered, you've got to say yes, right? Whether that's a, a funeral or a wedding. Uh, we did say yes to a wedding in India and that's pretty cool to experience. So yeah, you've got to say yes to those experiences if you get offered. Exactly. 
And it's kind of those things where you can't really predict. Like you can't say, okay, I'm, mm. I'm going to go there. I want to see a wedding or I want to see a funeral. It just happens. You know, you, you, it's basically just sheer luck. So uh, I was at the right place at the right time. And, uh, and, and yeah, that was really nice. And then after that, I went to the Kurmat Valley. Have you heard of uh, the Kurmat Valley? No, I don't see much about that. No. Okay, so it was discovered a few, I think a few years ago, because the Prime Minister Imran Khan was on a helicopter trip. Yeah. And he randomly landed in the Kurmat Valley. And he said, like, wow, that, that looks beautiful. It's a really nice place. So he made a video on social media. And then that's how people discovered the valley. And they started going there. So it's got oh, nice wow. trees, nice mountains around. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite fun. Um, is that yeah, is was, that the place nice. where on like you know social media Google where the pictures are like lush green with like a river going through it and it's like mountains either side almost like you could say Garden of Eden as an example. But is it like that that you see on social um, media? So no, Pakistan uh, has those like valleys, right? I think the one that you're referring to is Fairy Meadows. That's uh, ah that's, okay. Uh, the fairy, that's the common one that people. Uh, like the typical picture people will see of northern Pakistan, I think that's Fairy Meadows. Got but it. Krumat is a bit like that too. Like there's a river and uh, it's, um, it's there's a lot of trees and it's also lush green. Uh, well, I mean, I was there in the fall, so it wasn't super, super green. Mm. But I've seen pictures of what it looks like in the winter. And yeah, it was, uh, I mean, there's so many stories about Pakistan. Uh, I, I don't know which ones I should tell or not. But <laughs> um, So there's a, a place, well, the north is, is really nice. Um, it's, it's very rural, um, especially Gilgit Baltistan, uh, you know, it's mostly countryside and small villages, mm. everybody's really, really nice, extremely friendly. Uh, you know, like, uh, people, uh, are always, uh, happy to, to, to invite you to discover places. It's, it's the place I would recommend people to go to if they're visiting Pakistan for the first time, I would yeah. say go to the North first. Because okay. that's where most tourists go. It's very safe, very beautiful, very pretty. Uh, unlike the south, it's not too noisy or hectic. It's it's quiet. It's relaxed. So it's 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 the best way to discover Pakistan. You know, it, unlike Lahore, which is bustling and and busy yeah. and polluted. Like the north is is really really nice if you just want to relax and enjoy nature and go on hikes. You have to be uh, aware though that there's no indoor heating. So it can get really, really cold at night, ah, and okay. you, know, you need a lot of blankets to sleep because when you're sleeping and it's <laughs> it's super cold and there's you know nothing to warm you up, uh, <laughs> it's and, you know, yeah, it's, tough. It's an experience. Yeah, tough, very tough living conditions. Like people there are live in really difficult conditions. And I was there, you know, in October, September, October, and the beginning of November. But I can't imagine people who live there in January because you can imagine in the mountains when it's you know below zero and you have and uh, no indoor heating and you need to make a fire to stay warm i mean that's uh that's tough so how was so, yeah, it um, was hitchhiking up there was it pretty easy to get about or was it quite tough it was very easy very easy ah, because okay. you know usually hitchhiking, hitchhiking is easier when you're in uh remote areas uh low density areas mm -hmm. people tend to pick up people more and yeah it was it was quite good. I have one story of hitchhiking in the Yasin Valley. So the Yasin Valley is uh, in Gilgil Baltistan. It's a small valley, very beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And very little traffic because, you know, there's almost nobody who has a car. So you can walk and walk and no car comes. And uh, at some point, I went to uh, na enter nature's call. And I hear two cars that are 
passing me while I'm answering nature's call. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, like, I'm, uh, you know, part of me felt like, oh, I just missed the potential ride. And, you know, I was a bit frustrated. But then, you know what I said? I said, I, I told myself, everything must happen for a reason. And, <laughs> you know, if, if it didn't work, then uh, maybe it's because something better will, will uh, happen. And funnily enough, just after that, when I hit the road again, started walking, a few minutes later, a bike stopped. And it turns out the guy was going all the way to the end of the Yasin Valley to the exact location that I wanted to go to. Oh, wow. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> like, imagine if I'd gotten into that car and then they were just going to a different place and yeah, maybe yeah. I would have missed But now because I, I missed those two cars, I got the perfect ride all the way there. And, you know, afterwards, like it, the, the, the village was so remote. It's called Darkut, D-A-R-K-U-T. Yeah. If I hadn't had that ride for the whole day, I would not have been able to get, and I would have had to maybe hire a taxi or a car, but I wouldn't have been able to hitchhike there. So the one guy that was going there in the whole day, <laughs> I just managed to get him through um, good circumstances. And that really taught me, you know, don't worry too much. Like if something doesn't work out, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of believe that things happen for a reason. Yeah, it gave me some perspective. Like sometimes people will miss a bus or, oh, you know, they, something happens and they become frustrated. But it, you don't know, like maybe that happens and then something, because of that, it will open up opportunities to meet somebody that's nice that will invite you or something else. So Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think there's always, I always think there's always options. If you miss your first option of a bus, I'm sure there's a, another option, right? And like you say... I think that could lead to something else that you, that you didn't expect. But that's cool. You got no, all the way up to Darkut, though, and that's, that's amazing. You're pretty much at the north, at the top end here near Wakhan. Did you ever go into that region? Um, no, I was in the Wakhan when I was in Tajikistan, but uh, the, the bordering the Wakhan uh, corridor. Yeah. And But you're talking about the Afghan Wakhan, right? The, the yeah. narrow strip. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been, uh, that's pretty much the only part of Afghanistan I haven't visited. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but you're right. Darkut is quite remote, quite north. Uh, it's, it's actually the end. Like you can see after Darkut, there's no other villages. Yeah, there's nothing I'll else. Yeah. Another, I'll, I'll give you another quick story of, um, well, actually, I'll finish up the Darkut story. So then I get there. And of course, I mean, there's no tourist infrastructure. Darkut is just super remote. There's no guest house or nothing. It's just uh, some animals and herders and, and uh, farmers. So. I asked the guy, I'm like, ooh, like, where am I going to sleep? How, how am I going <laughs> to sleep tonight? And he's like, no, don't worry about it. It'll just come to my house and, uh, you know, I'll put you up for the night. And, and it was freezing, actually. That's the one place in, in my whole life where I legitimately scared of getting hypothermia. Oh, wow. If you, oh. if you go up to, like, his house was on top of a mountain. So we had yeah. to hike for now. You reach Darkut and then... Um, I don't know if you see it on the map. There's a place called Upper Darkut, or sometimes yes, people call yes. it. Gab so he's actually in Upper Darkut, which okay, is yeah. quite high right. up. And 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 we were near the fire, and then we got warmed up, and then of course you have to go to sleep, and the fire needs to be put off. And then when you leave the room, and there's no fire, and you step outside, and it's like <laughs> zero, but you, you're used to being near, near, the, near to the fire. You, you know, you just rush into the blankets, into the sleeping bag, and you hope that you're going to fall asleep soon. But it was just terrible. I, I remember the guy and me, you know, we were really, um, that's what I was saying. Like, it, it's tough conditions, and I don't know how people there manage to do it year long. I can't even imagine, you know, when it's January. Uh, they, they're very tough. Either, either I've be as a Westerner, we've become more soft, 
or they're just naturally tough. I don't know. Maybe it's but, both. So you're from Quebec, right? So you must have experienced, I know you've got obviously heating indoors, but you'd experienced some pretty low temperatures, right? In your day? Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. But I think it's also because I wasn't expecting it. So I, maybe I didn't have the proper clothing as well. Like I didn't okay. have the proper, proper winter clothing because mm. I didn't think it would be that cold. And I was just shocked. Um, it was almost like like there was snow it was almost like what you would see in winter in quebec but i didn't have the in quebec i'll have the the gloves the winter gloves that are very thick and warm i'll have um the the, the socks winter socks as well mm. boots very very nice coat but i was more dressed like uh you would be for for the fall season or the spring season yeah 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 well, that might have been the reason as well so the question but, is yeah. how, how did you get back from there obviously this one guy got you there so how did you yeah. get back again very lucky the next day he was actually coming to his village because he was preparing uh to organize a wedding for somebody and, uh, yeah. like he was going to send invitations so the next day he was going to go out with his bike and his friend who also had a bike to send some invitations to um to to, to, to people for the wedding that was coming up mm. so he had to go back up down the valley the way we came to send these invitations. So I was really lucky. I, I was able to again, go with him to about halfway through the Valley from the way we had come from. Yeah. And then from there, when he, he went to the last house, then uh, he could drop me off. And there was a little bit more traffic in that area because mm -hmm. we were not in Darkutna. We were about halfway um, in the Valley. And from there uh, I started walking. And interestingly enough, this is, I think one of the only times it has happened in my life. Somebody came up to me without me, uh, soliciting any help and they said hey I can see you have got a bag you look like a foreigner you're a, a traveler right I said yes I said oh I'm inviting you to my house can you just please come and uh, have tea and then from <laughs> and, yeah yeah it's, it's crazy I, I think it's happened two or three times in my life yeah and that was one of those times it's just amazing I think we touched on this in Sudan about the generosity of people where they are just willing to know who you are invite you into their house even for you to stay with them for the night or just come around for tea or some food. It's, it's amazing the hospitality and it? it's, it's quite hard to yeah. grasp compared to maybe like a Western country where that just wouldn't happen. I don't think. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm very grateful that, that this guy did this. And I was, I was shocked because I had experienced very good hospitality before where I had met somebody through an, a more convenient, uh, like normal way. And then we, we sort of become friends and then they would invite me. Yes. They have somebody straight up come up to me out of the blue. That was that was shocking because I thought, wow, that's uh, you know, that's another level. Like I can I can imagine okay, somebody you meet at a restaurant, you guys start talking, and then he mm. says, Oh, you know, I've got a spare couch if you want to come. That's one thing. But to see me walk, to take the time to come walking after me, and I was just surprised. I, I turned back and I, I was wondering maybe he wants to ask me some at first I, I didn't know what he wanted. I thought maybe he's looking for uh, for help or for something. Uh, but yeah, I took the invitation. I was quite happy. Yeah, and uh, it was it was great. So that's something, James, that I I fear will unfortunately disappear in the next few decades uh, because you know, like you said, in the West, nobody does that anymore. And I think yeah. as these regions industrialize and as the their culture changes, unfortunately, I believe uh, that hospitality will be lost. What, what do you think? Yeah, we touched on this on Afghanistan and Sudan, I think we both agreed that the more tourism that enters the country, Pakistan is a classic example here where we 
what I think, and I probably you might think the same as well. Next ten years, it's going to get really busy. It was like named maybe like one or two lonely planets, like places to go. So that means people are going to go. When tourism and potentially money comes into it, it could give that impression that they just want to maybe not be as I don't know what the word is like because they want to maybe earn a quick dollar. You can see this in the classic cases of where I've experienced like that is something like. I don't know. I, I, I bark on about Bali, for example, right? I, I can't stand the place because all they're catered to is earning a quick dollar. And it's just like, it's just an awful place to travel to because they're just touching the shoulder like, oh, do you want to buy this? It's constant. It's never genuine. And I think countries like yeah. Pakistan and maybe where you've been in Africa as well, I think hopefully it won't, but I think it will start to dwindle with, with tourism increasing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. And, and the, the, the upside is that I think and you can probably tell from all my stories and the way I travel that I'm kind of looking for that. Like, like I'm always going out of the way to go to the small villages. Like for example, yes. Darkwood, like I'm, you can tell that I'm always doing the extra mile to make sure that I can sort of still experience that. Because what I like about traveling, as, as I've told you in the previous episode, in the previous part is meeting the people, uh, but it will get more difficult at the same time. I think there's always going to be, small villages, small remote True. valleys that are overlooked. But you people will need to do the extra effort to, to, to reach there. That, that is true. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned Darkut there, that story there. I mean, if you look at Pakistan and maybe like some tour companies, for example, what they offer, there's no way I don't think they're going to go right to Darkut. So I think there will be opportunities if you're willing to go real you know, off the beaten path. I think you could still find those pockets of countries where they will be like as, as nice I think that will still be a possibility, but it will be harder. Right. It's t- the time is basically to go now, <laughs> I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, and I would say that if you wanted to ask me what was my favorite part of Pakistan, yeah, uh, in case you, you or your listeners ever go there, although I, pro- I mean, I don't want people to spoil it, but I, I do have hope that people would be nice. It's that whole region from everything west of Gilgit. You can see Gilgit on the map. Yeah. Every, everything west of that, all the way to Chitral. Chitral is still nice. And yeah. um, all the way to, uh, I mean, even Kumrat is also quite quite nice. But let's say I'll stop at Chitral just to put a, a boundary. So everything west of Gilgit, all the way to Chitral. I, so the northwest, essentially. I feel like that's the most unspoiled and um, the yeah. best part. Like a circle, right? Darkert, round to Booney, Russian, Chitral. Then you've got Kumrat and Kalam. East That's to right. and then back to Sarko, that little circle Kalam, there. Once you, once you reach Kalam, it, it gets a little different because there's a lot of domestic tourists that go to Kalam and Kalam, unfortunately, okay. is overrun by like all the t- domestic tourists go there and it's become a bit commercial. People are still nice, but it's a bit different. Okay. But everything before Kalam, like you said, uh, Kumrat, um, Deer, the town of Deer, Chatral, all that area. It's 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 amazing. I'll give you. You mentioned Booney. I'll give you an uh, a story from Booney. Yeah, please. So, and and you know, it's like this is my favorite part of Pakistan. Like I said, so <laughs> as I was going towards Booney, I I was hitchhiking again. Somebody uh, pulls over and says, "Hey, um, uh, do you want to come see a, a farm of my uncle or something like this?" So we go visit the farm. I meet his uncle. They've got nice fruits. It's really nice and. Uh, I've got, I have a great time there. And then the guy, the uncle who owns the farm, he says, oh, where are you, uh, where are you exactly are you heading? I said, oh, I'm going to Booney. He said, oh, you know what? He said, you're going to Booney. I mean, I, I've actually got a residence in Booney. I actually live there and I have, this farm is my second property. 
<laughs> and I'm going to go there tomorrow. But um, you know what? Here's my number. Once you get to Booney, uh, actually go to my house. My wife is there. My kids are there. And you can stay there. And I'll see you tomorrow when I get there. <laughs> and so I, I get to Booney and yeah. I call. And, and sure enough, his wife comes pick, uh, to, to meet me at the, the house, whatever. I see his kids. And again, great man. Like he wasn't even there the first night. So he really trusted me because I was trust. in his home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a uh, really nice guy. And uh, yeah, it was just very nice. And then the next day he came and then there was a polo tournament in Puni. You know the, the sport polo? Yeah, it's, it's quite famous up there, isn't it? It's quite a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. they love it. They love it. So um, they've actually, they actually have a place called the Shandur Pass, S-H-A-N-D-U-R, which is apparently the world's highest polo ground. That's what they say. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I've, I saw a video on it the other day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the world's highest polo ground. So they, they really love polo. Um, so anyways, they had a tournament in Booney. And you can probably imagine not a lot of people go through Booney. Mm. So I'm not even kidding. They invited me. And then the guy was like, uh, you need to meet the district commissioner. You need." So I, I ended up meeting all these local politicians. And I was sort of the <laughs> guest of the event or whatever. And then that was again crazy i didn't even think that would be possible my my friend asked he said oh because you're a guest i'll ask uh, the organizers of the pole tournament if you can throw a ball so the announcer you know they have the mic yeah. and the announcer is commenting on the game and actually they asked me to at one point during the game to throw the ball between the i don't know how you said in english pitch the ball or something yeah pitch yeah 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 yeah, so I, had, I actually pitched the ball for the pole <laughs> tournament and, and it was a surreal experience <laughs> It sounds quite an honor as well. I, I don't think they take that too lightly. So that's, that's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's just a crazy experience. Like, you know, I mean, I, you can imagine like I'm just this backpacker going around to visit places. And in a few <laughs> minutes, I, I end up like pitching a ball at a local tournament with hundreds, if not thousands of people around. And it was, yeah, it was definitely a, a beautiful experience. I think there's even a, an interview that they did of me on the uh, Facebook page. Oh, is there? This area, this area is called the uh, it's called Upper Chitral. Okay. Uni is in Upper Chitral, and I think on Facebook, you know, they're, they're so happy to see like, foreigners coming that uh, they're always looking for an opportunity to uh, to, to show people like, hey, mm. people are coming, and our our event is appreciated internationally. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I might try and dig that out so I can find it on Facebook. Yeah, that, that'd be cool to see. Yeah, Upper Chitral. Um, Upper Chitral District Commissioner, something like this. Um, it would have been in October of 2021, so you'd have to go back a lot on their page. But if yeah, you, cool. I think it's Upper Chitral District Commissioner, something mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. And if you go in October, there should be an interview of me uh, where there's a guy filming. Yeah, so great, great, um, great experience. At this event, I met a guy. My stories are so crazy sometimes, but people <laughs> might think I'm like making this up, but I'm completely honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I met a guy, and there used to be a, a royalty in Chitral. Like before, in the old days, there used to be, uh, as you know, I mean, the whole subcontinent, even in India, they had yeah. you know kings and, and things like that. Mm. So this guy is part of the royal family of Chitral. Okay. And he said, okay, if you're going to Chitral City, here's my number, and you're welcome to meet me there, and we can we can meet up so here's my number so okay i'm thinking that's nice and then a yeah. few days later i go to chital and I, th I thought okay i'll bring him up just to see if he was serious and he was actually serious so he invited me to his home 
And of course, you can imagine he's got a huge property because he's part of the royal family. He's got his own horses. And in the end, I, I just ended up being a guest of like the former royal family uh, <laughs> of Chitral and just getting these really interesting insights into how the royal family uh, worked and they used to own lands and, you know, they had these hunting grounds and this and that. And he was just telling me about it. And I, you know, I just felt blessed. I'm, I'm thinking, wow, That's you know, how, yeah, how yeah. lucky I am to be experiencing this. And he was telling me how some people were a bit angry at him because of things that his ancestors did that he yes. never, of course, committed. So they're like, oh, you're like your great, great grandfather, like treated his peasants badly. And like, and he was just laughing because, of course, he's got nothing to do with that. But being part of the royal family, you know, he was associated with some nasty stuff from the past. So that was that was quite fun. I was going to um, say, did he did he talk about like the transition because it's former royal family right so they've obviously were and now not anymore yeah. so did he talk about yeah, he, what it's like now because it's a bit weird isn't it to go from like that sort of level of status to maybe like just joining the normal people now yeah exactly it's it's, it's very strange i think i think he was a bit um what's the word uh, nostalgic of that era in the sense that of yes. course his family had a lot of power before yeah i think his father was a duke that was the title of his father people called him prince but his his father was a duke so i guess the okay. king would have been maybe his uncle or something but yeah he was saying that uh, he was not so happy with uh, with the transition mm. uh, because i think when when the transition happened the pakistani government sort of um force them to they, they bought landed uh, from them uh at a cheap price and then they gave it to to the public yeah. so they of course they lost some power they lost some lands so they they weren't too happy about it um and that was interesting because i was thinking like the same thing happened in europe you know uh like in french in france for example yeah, after yeah. the revolution and all that but because that's so far away i can't get i can't go back in time and talk to nobles of france and <laughs> Napoleon. But here <laughs> yeah. I went to Pakistan because it's more recent. I'm able to understand, okay, this is how the nobility uh, went through this transition and how they're coping now. So now he had his own business. I think he was doing consulting for an engineering firm. Oh, okay. And he, uh, he had an engineering business and he was an entrepreneur. Mm. And it was just interesting to see that, you know, this guy had blue blood and he was part of a former royal family, but now he had to, you know, do do his own thing so yeah yeah it was interesting but he was definitely not very happy with the transition you could tell that um they they sort of missed the bygone era yeah that is very interesting because you, you would have met people like across the whole range of spectrum right so like former royal family down to maybe even some of the poorest so it's quite interesting that yeah. you, you had quite yeah. a good perspective on that exactly and and that's something that sometimes um I don't know if you would agree with me, but I feel like sometimes there's almost experience overload because oh, okay. like, the way I'm, like the way I'm talking to you now, of course, I'm, I'm going one event after one event, but you can imagine when I'm going through this, like I'm in Darkut one day and I'm on the top of this mountain with farmers freezing and then boom, next day, Boonie uh, Polo Tournament or this next day, Royal Family. Like sometimes it's, it's, it's so much that's happening and your brain has to process all this information and all yes. this data and sociological information and ethnicities and and uh insights and it's like people think traveling is like a holiday on the beach sometimes but it can be really mentally straining because mm -hmm. you're constantly getting information okay you're talking to this prince and next time you're talking to this uh, polo player that organizes a tournament or you know you're constantly bombarded with like you said insights and um 
you, you have to make a picture of the society that you're in. Yes. And try and like, yeah, analyze exactly. all the information, right? And try and yeah. even form your own opinion. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's almost like, uh, I mean, I'm going there for leisure, but it, I, I almost felt sometimes, sometimes like I was an anthropologist because it felt mm. like I was doing a survey of anthropology on the region. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. And also for people who are maybe a bit more introverted, that can be even, even tougher, right? For, for me, weirdly enough, I would say uh, I'm a bit more introverted. So that experience overload, I, I totally get it. Even going on, on a night out is, is, is quite tough sometimes. So yeah, if you, I found yeah. traveling, I just needed like maybe a day just to even by myself, just to like, you know, relax and take stock a little bit. That's, that's key for yeah. long travel, I think. Yeah, you need, uh, my friend has a name for it, uh, like the recharge days or something like this, yes. like uh, a period where you just sort of recharge the batteries and you, you take it smooth. Um, one thing I'll say about the Royal Family, because you asked me uh, about them, I, I noticed that unfortunately, after the transition, uh, or maybe they had the problem before, but I, I saw a lot of alcoholism and uh, substance abuse in the Royal Family of Chitra, oh, Okay, the people I met. So maybe it's because they have enough money from their land and they, they can just live on the uh, mm. income so they don't have to work enough. But I, I saw a lot of people like drinking alcohol and um, literally alcoholics and things like that. So yeah. it was interesting to, to see that, uh, that even though they had all this land and they were these former very powerful people, all the, like the, the people I, I met, a lot of them had, uh, the prince himself was okay. Like he was completely sober. Mm-hmm. but a lot of guys you could tell that uh, i'm not sure what it is it, it sounds like almost they're just kind of missing it like missing those times right if you're yearning to go back to how it was and you can't i mean a lot of people are just going to go to drink or drugs right just to get through it because what else can you yeah do? yeah exactly like, i think i think that's probably yeah. what it is um they couldn't cope with the the loss of power because it was a big thing like now that it's a democracy you know they elect their leaders the, the local councillors and things like that so yeah. They completely lost their status and people used to defer to them. And now, I mean, they're just symbolically respected, but every, in, rea- in reality, nobody cares anymore. So yeah, yeah, you're right. I think, um, I think that's what it was. So, and again, it, it gave me that insight that, yeah, you know, maybe in the end, the local trolley vegetable seller is better off than this former. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. yeah that the local tomato seller has probably got a bit more freedom now. He's not, He's probably earned a bit more money or he's, he's a bit more secure. Whereas before, you could arguably say the royal family takes that away from people, right? So the masses are, I would say, the masses are better off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you ever go to Chitral, I'll, I'll also say you you can check out, um, there's an animal called Marhor, M-A-R-K-H-O-R. Okay. It looks a bit like a deer with beautiful horns. And you can spot them when they go drink water from the river. Uh, there's a specific spot. Mm-hmm. And it's a very beautiful animal, uh, Marhor. If, if you ever go there, you can definitely see them. I think there's even snow leopards, but you would have to go during uh, the winter. That's when it's easier to spot them. Yeah. Quite hard to see, aren't they? They're quite rare. Yeah, you have to go up in the mountains and uh, you have to pay guides. At, but even then, it's not guaranteed that you'll see. But Marhors are, are quite uh, easy to, to spot. Okay. And I've got just a quick question about hitchhiking. This might be... I don't know if it's a stupid question or not, but f- the feeling that we would have, right, or I would have anyway, is if someone is offering their house to stay for a night or even tea or dinner, you're, you're kind of inclined to give them a gift, aren't you? Because you want to say thanks, but I guess you would 
not do that and i guess after the first few times you realize that it's just just them being nice right or do you always offer yeah. what's the what's the protocol yeah. here yeah i would i would usually offer but then i realized that because the thing is i don't really have like the only gift i would be able to give would be money because i i just had my backpack some some yeah. dirty clothes and that was pretty much it so that was the issue so I, I, there was nothing material that i could really give them mm. but uh and, and like sometimes i could offer you know okay should i buy you this or that but in, in that region yeah so usually if they invited me like like i didn't have much but you it might sound a bit cheesy, but I think the the best gift I was able to give, which I know isn't monetary, so people will say, "Oh, it doesn't count." But mm. like, I think just sharing my stories and my experience as a traveler and the adventures, and just talking with my host, I think yeah. that made their day, and I could always see that they were really happy because you, people have to remember a lot of these people they're a bit bored with their life or nothing happens, and they and then they see this Canadian guy who's been to Africa, who's been to many places, who can talk to them. And oftentimes I felt like just me talking and, and like explaining my journey that was so interesting to them. And I could just see their eyes lit up, light up. And I, I could feel like, you know, that was my way of mm -hmm. giving back by entertaining them. It, you, you usually, you give back with your time because you're hosted, yes. but you're then expected to spend time and entertain them. And that's the way that I would give back. I wouldn't be on my phone, just calling my parents. If the host is hosting me, I'll make sure that I'm with him to, you know, spend time with him. And that's the yes. way that's back. That's key, actually. That's, that's a good point because you don't want to be sitting there on your phone, do you? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, no, no. That, that's a key point that you, you know, you're invested in your host's yeah. family or his life, right? And try and understand his life as well. Yeah. Exactly. And I always make it clear that I'm not expecting to be fed as well. If you're hosting me, I'm always making sure that I'm going out to get food. I mean, if they're insisting, like, like they're like, no, no, come join me for breakfast. Okay, that's fine. But otherwise... Uh, my rule is always if you're giving me a bed that's really nice, I'm not mm -hmm. expecting anything else. And in the morning, I'll just go to the market, get, get some food. And uh, so I always try to minimize the costs. Because at least the bed, like it doesn't cost them anything. Yes. If they start giving me food, that things they've actually bought. So now they've invested in me and I don't I don't like that. Yeah. So at least with the bed, I feel like, okay, the, the bed is there anyways. Like yeah, yeah. sleeping under the roof won't take money out of them. The moment I feel uncomfortable is when people start investing money because that's when I feel like, no, now I'm, I'm costing them something. But yeah, like I said, usually yeah. giving back is entertaining. Um, they they, they want to learn, how is Canada? Tell me about your culture. How is the marriage uh, culture of Canada? How mm. are... And, and you have to tell them. So And sometimes it can get, um, you know you get tired of repeating because everybody will ask yeah, you, okay, hey, yeah. how does this work in Canada? And like after 50 times, you get tired of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was thinking about this, my, for me personally on this sort of trip, I would like maybe carry some podcast stickers, like pretty easy, small in terms of putting in a bag, but quite nice just to give them a bit of a reminder of maybe who it was. They can have a sticker. That's what I would do. But money is a bit of a, yeah bit of a weird thing isn't it they probably don't want your money they probably just want to just like have you in their bed but yeah as soon as they start buying food for you and cooking for you that could be a bit of an interesting dynamic yeah but, but i always make it clear like like my rule is like i said like i'm not expecting them to put money uh, to invest money uh, when they're hosting me so i always try to make it clear and mm. like, like i said maybe postcards is something that i could do but mm. i've never felt because i've all with all the experiences i've had i've always felt that like when i leave the host is happy and the, the host is um, satisfied. Like I, I've never felt like they, they felt like um, 
they hadn't received enough or, or something like that. So, so far it, it has served me well. Do you ever get like a photo maybe like with the family or the host? Absolutely. I, I always yeah. take some pictures with them and then, uh, even, uh, when I'm on the way, I might send them some pictures of where I'm at at the moment. The other thing I would say is that because I think people have sometimes a romantic view of, of, uh, what these encounters can be, mm. but for me, and I think for, for, for a lot of people, I'm realistic in the sense that if I meet this guy in Upper Darkwood, for example, and it's a really nice meeting and I'm happy and I'll give him my WhatsApp number and uh, that's fine. But I'm also realistic. I can understand that, okay, it's not going to be a lifelong, it's unlikely to become a lifelong friendship just because of yeah, how of far we live and everything. Yeah. But there's also beauty in that because, you know, okay, I'm meeting this guy now. We're going to spend two days together. Yeah. This is it. We'll probably never meet again, but that's fine because we still have two days and I'm going to try to be the nicest, kindest person I can be for these two days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just give it all for the time that you have. If I meet them again, them again, that's great. Of course, if they come to Canada, I'll pay back by inviting them to my house. Or if even if I'm back in Pakistan, I can meet them somewhere else and, and treat them back. Because otherwise what happens is then you have these uh, people that will like message you yeah, and you're on the road and you're meeting other people. And then they're messaging you, and it can uh, become a lot uh, to to handle. You know, like you're somewhere, uh, and then yeah, yeah. I think that kind of defines travel almost, right? You want to spend two days with someone, you invest your time, you get to know them, and that most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, is it. You probably won't see them again, and that even happens in like generic travel, right? With like westerners that you meet on the road, right? You might have one or two days with them, and then you don't see them again, and that's fine. Exactly. Like, you, you had that experience, and you a bit sounds a bit cheesy you kind of got it forever right and you kind of remember it yeah no but you're completely yeah even most of the westerners like i, I like i met uh, maybe i meet a canadian guy somewhere okay mm. great but like you said i'm not going to expect that okay we're going to meet we're definitely going to meet again on the road or in canada no we're here now it's fun we're, we're i'm happy to to be there but you know i i'm living in the moment and uh because i think when I started traveling, I had this false expectation, everybody I'm going to meet, I'll stay in touch with yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you soon realize it's impossible. Logistically, you can't because you'd have to talk to hundreds of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just, you know, it's there now. And, and again, like we talked about previously on the other time, you know, technology is the technology like cell phones and things like that. It's a new thing. In the old days, you know, if you were Marco Polo and you were mm. in Iran and you met a really nice carpet seller, you might have a great conversation with the carpet seller. You might even stay a few days and get to know him. But in Marco Polo's era, he knew that once he would leave that village, it would be almost impossible to see the guy again. And even like send letters in those days, it was really hard to communicate. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you know, horses and hundreds of kilometers from Italy to Iran and things like that. So I don't think humans have evolved to maintain long distance relationships. You know, like, I don't know if you know a bit about evolutionary psychology, like people say that humans have evolved for a specific type of environment and that our brain has been shaped by evolution. And I think this whole long distance, this whole long distance relationship friendship thing, Mm -hmm. it's a very, it's a novelty for, for, for humans. Um, So we're not really meant for that type of relationship. What what do you think? Yeah, that, that kind of rings like true to, smartphones right how many times do we connect with someone on a smartphone because we can but it's not real like a real connection is it like in reality you could have five thousand friends on social media across four or five platforms right but how many of those are actual proper 
what you call like people that you would call friends right because they yeah are never there in person they're just there on remotely and that's great to keep in contact but yeah i think you're right i don't know too much about that philosophy and and the way that works it's just basically this idea that um like humans like you know like through evolution when we were like hunter gatherers in the yeah, old yeah. days and things like yeah. that you know like tribes like we we used to live in tribes and for like thousands of years we'd be hunting but you'd always be with your mates with your pals but like you wouldn't have the ability to talk to somebody that's yeah, yeah. a thousand kilometers away mm. so and, and you even see that like you said with texting like we're, we're meant for like we're, we're now oral communication or even better if it's face to face with texting you don't really know okay what's the is it irony is the person yeah the context right. the it creates a lot of problems so my personal philosophy is that the, the best way to talk and communicate is in person yeah and agreed. of course i can keep con I, I, I try to keep contact with some people mm. the ones that i really really connected well with because i uh, you know i'll keep and keep in touch but um my philosophy is that yeah, real life friendships where you both sit down and have a drink together or you you meet in person that's the best way to go the yeah. most natural way and whether that's for two days or for 10 years i think there's a beauty in that there is a beauty in either whether you've got a, a friend who's 20 years old in terms of like knowing each other or you met someone in, in dark for two days i'd imagine both experiences have their own merit and they're both equally as good for those situations right so yeah. Two days, exactly. fine. Like he'll remember that. He'll probably even talk about it in ten years' time, right? To someone else. This can be, oh yeah, oh yeah. I think this guy, you know, like you said, like this Kenyan guy that nearly froze to death and everything. I'm sure. He yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 the beauty as well is that when you're in a, when you're meeting somebody and you know that you're not probably not going to see them again, and he knows that as well. I think it creates an accelerated friendship in the sense that there's no filter anymore because mm. there's no fear because you know, okay, in two days. We won't see each other. We might as well be as truthful as possible and just yes. be as honest yeah. as we can. So it, it it creates this bond. I've had people um, in Pakistan like confess to me that they were like, for example, homosexuals and that they were oh, wow. persecuted. And I knew the guy for only a few hours, but he knew that he'd never see me again. Mm. So he just opened up everything and like told me about his personal life and how he had to hide his sexuality to his family because otherwise they would, you know, ostracize him. That's powerful, that, to, isn't it? Cool. Yeah, and I would have never like the only reason I got to to hear that is because of that accelerated uh, friendship. I think that's why I want to obviously travel to an extent because in a in a sedentary environment where Vancouver, for example, here, right, and this is not personal to anyone. You have a job, and you have a group of people at work that you would probably call friends, right, in an, in a to someone else, but you're kind of forced to maybe get on with them. And what else can you do? Because you're going to be doing that job for 40 hours a week for one or two years, right? So you you have no real choice. But if you're traveling and you're doing like a six-month travel in Pakistan, you can, you know in your own mind that well, if you weren't particularly keen on one person, that's fine. You've seen for one day and you can move on. Or if you're working on that person, it'd still be one day, but you would say, oh, I met this great guy. You tell that story, right? So I think there's more choice in travel because you are going to so many different places and meeting so many different people that, you get the opportunity to maybe pick and choose a bit better. Whereas in a normal sort of working environment or yeah. somewhere where you stay for a long period of time, you don't really have too much choice. That's, that's correct. And yeah, or even like a business environment or even in Canada, it could be a, a school environment, you university, yes. you need to. And, and a good example would be, I met a Dutch guy in Pakistan and he was walking down the street and I'm the one who actually went up to him because I could see he was a foreigner with a backpack. And I said, ah, how are you? And, 
we introduced ourselves and mm. I was just kind of keen to speak to a foreigner. And we connected really well because of course we're, you know, we're these two foreigners <laughs> in Pakistan in this remote village. And because, like you said, we're in this free setting, we can choose to talk to each other or not. We can both walk away with no consequence. Yes. We built a, we built a decent friendship and we're still in touch now because, you know, we're both free. We can both talk about whatever we want. There's no time constraint. There's no business project that needs to be done or our university uh, project that absolutely needs to be done quickly. We're just there. Mm. We're chatting. So yeah, that, that freedom allows for truthful conversations. And um, that's something that I often miss when I go back home. I feel like it's, it's harder to, yeah. move, you know? Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I just thought as well, like university, for example, right? You, you probably meet loads of people and you probably generally think what two or three people, you're probably like close friends, right? But in this weird society at the minute, we've got this like social media society where, but you still be friends with them on social media, like the other hundred people, right? But you wouldn't make an effort to go and see them or even keep in contact. It's a weird thing. So you would go into my profile and say, oh, he's got a thousand friends. Yeah, but how many do I actually keep in contact with? It's a, it's a weird yeah. dynamic. I can't quite get my head around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, let me just could be, ask if you ask on Facebook, hey, I need to move out of my apartment. I need some <laughs> help to move out the furniture. How many people will actually show up to help you? Like, yeah, that's yeah. the test because, you know, like you said, somebody can have thousands of friends. And my stepdad used to, to have this sort of joke, like he would say, you know, you know, somebody's a real friend when they're willing to help you move out on a Sunday morning or something like that. Like yeah. that's, you, that's when, yeah. you know, okay, that guy, you know, like he's got my back. But yeah, I think a lot of friendship <laughs> in our era, like you said, it, it it's, it's on paper, you know, it's friends on paper, but um, you never really know, okay, uh, how deep is it really? Yeah, absolutely. I think travel is a great way to go and maybe try and test those theories out and meet some different cultures and different people and see what you think about. Do you prefer that culture? Do you like your own culture? Do you like your own friends or do you like meeting different people? It's, it's a good way to go and explore those options. I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, so that's something that uh, I learned on the road that when you're in that setting, people open up. Yeah. They tell you about their things. Like I told you about the um, guy that was, that was gay and mm. he had like a secret boyfriend and his family oh, didn't wow. even know about it. And I thought like his parents don't know. And I get to know because he's telling me it was, yeah, you feel privileged when you, when you hear yeah, the yeah. stories. People. It can't get any more powerful than that. <laughs> like that is yeah. such a, a bit of information that he cannot risk getting out there. Like it's so risky for him to even tell anyone because the repercussions could be quite bad that he's actually willing to yeah. tell you. It's quite a, I don't think it can get any better than that in terms of a friendship or for that like one day. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. There was another man, for example, who, told me that his father had so just to give you a bit of context so i was i was staying with him again another person who kindly hosted me and i was in a in a place called the yarhun valley uh y-a-r-k-h-o-o-n it's okay. a bit after yasin on the way to it's before Buni. uh i think the name of the town was jupu z-h-u-p-p-u something like that Okay. Um, yeah. And Yarhun Valley. So, anyways, I was there in, in his house and, you know, really beautiful countryside. And, you know, he just opened up again and he told me how his father had passed away a few years ago in a car accident. He'd fallen off a cliff oh, wow. um, with the car and he, he had died. And he was just telling me how, how much pain he felt and how hard it was, how hard it had been for him to, to lose a parent and, you know, uh, 
and then, you know, just listening. And yeah, I only spent maybe three days in total with this person, but mm. I feel like the time I was with him and we were eating together and connecting is stronger than some, some of the friendships I've had with people for years. Like the connection was just that strong. Like yeah. The, yeah. It, it's hard to put into words. I don't, I don't mm. really know how to describe it, but it's just that connection where you feel like you could say anything to the person. You could confess that you've murdered someone. I'm, I'm joking <laughs> here, but you could, you could tell him anything. And you feel like he's going to listen and tell you his things. And yeah, yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And that's the beauty of getting off maybe like the generic travel route, right? If you go off the beaten path and meet these different people, not the touristy people, I think you're going to get that sort of experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So for Pakistan, let's, let's wrap it up. We've done a good chunk on that. Is there anything else you want to say? I'll touch briefly on Baluchistan because um, yeah. it's an interesting province. Okay. I'll make it simple. So in theory, from a legal perspective, you are allowed to go to Balochistan in the sense that legally in 2019, there's a presidential decree that really stated that you, you no longer have uh, an NOC. NOC is a non-objection certificate. Okay. And yet you can go anywhere in Pakistan without one. You can look it up online. It's in 2019. If you type NOC abolished Pakistan 2019, legally, you can go anywhere without a non-objection um, certificate. But that's legally. But unfortunately, mm. a lot of the police and the army and the people that are the checkpoints, they don't know or they don't care. I don't know what, what it is, Yeah. but they, they don't care. So when, when I went to Balochistan, I was with a friend. We, we got um, detained uh, there, uh, near the, the, the beach there on the coast. I don't know if you can see where that is. Uh, Hengel National Park. Yeah. H-I-N-G. Near o so, Omara. So down there? Yeah, Omar, exactly that area. So we were detained. We The police were following us everywhere for security because they were afraid that something will happen. Uh, insurgents might kidnap us or whatever, even though we were telling them, like, hey, legally, we're allowed to be here without an escort. Long story short, I got tired of this. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I want to see Baluchistan, but I'm just tired of this literally illegal action by the police that are breaking the, the law that says I'm allowed to be here without yeah. an escort. So my, my strategy was that uh, I had to walk around and I'm sorry to say that I hope people are not offended if people are very law abiding, but I had to kind of walk around checkpoints like through the desert. If I, if I saw from <laughs> far away that there was a police checkpoint, I had to literally walk five kilometers around it, <laughs> then hitch a ride. Yeah. That's how I did the whole of Baluchistan by, by just dressing up as a local and just, completely trying to blend in and trying as much as possible to avoid the police because on Omar on the beach, I had that sort of negative experience where they were just overbearing and they, you know, you want to go for a swim and then these guys want to sleep. So they don't want to come with you. And then in the end you're stuck there. So it just got too tire tiring. So I ended up going all the way to Quetta, which is the capital of Baluchistan. Yeah. yeah. And I uh, had a great time in, in, in Baluchistan, very nice, uh, people but i always had to hide all the time which was annoying like sometimes the police would walk past me and i you know you get to, you get nervous because if they if they catch you then they'll just make problems because I, in pakistan it's strange the law is there but yeah. what you understand is that the law is not applied it's there on paper so if it's <laughs> in, just theory if in theory you can't if there's a, a red light you can't pass that's the yeah. theory the practice of people do it so in theory I'm allowed to be here and practice. The police uh, don't like it. <laughs> so in the end, yeah. So my, my advice is if people, if your listeners ever want to go to Baluchistan, if they want to go with a guide, then that's fine. The guide will have a police escort and everything. 
But if they want to go by themselves, then unfortunately they'll have to really try to blend in and maybe walk around some checkpoints. That's the only way you can do it. Yeah, my question is for this area of Pakistan, why is it such a thing? Why are the police like that? Why do you need a permit? Or why is this area a bit different, should we say, to the rest of Pakistan? Uh, very interesting. So, okay, essentially two things. Yeah. One, uh, a lot of Baluchis are not happy with Pakistan. and They want independence. So there's this group called okay. the Baluchistan Liberation Army. It's called, it's the BLA. Yeah. And the BLA, they're essentially insurgents who live in the mountains. But I think they have kidnapped people in the past and their goal is to get Balochistan to become an independent sovereign country. Okay. So there are some fightings occasionally with the Pakistani army and, and Pakistan is care that uh, foreigners will be targeted and will be uh, kidnapped or uh, held for ransom for political power plays. So that's the first thing, the BLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they've kidnapped some people in the past. And yeah, there's some areas of Balochistan where I've heard that uh, there's still some fighting going on. Okay. You see on the map, there's a place called Turbat. I think it's what's called Panjgur and Turbat. It's in the oh, western yeah. side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, so I, I've been told that's the, the nasty area to avoid where there's... Uh, yeah, there you go, Turbat and Panjgur. Mm-hmm. Around there, apparently, it's still quite tense. Okay. But when I was in Quetta or even Khuzdar, K-H-U-Z-D-A-R, these areas, for me, they were fine. I didn't see anything too bad so that's the first thing the bla and then the second thing is the pakistani taliban so not the afghan taliban but the local taliban they, they're, they're called the ttp Tariq taliban pakistan yeah they're also active in the mountains and they have kidnapped uh, people in the past i think they kidnapped czech tourists in 2013 and swiss tourists in 2011 okay so again pakistan a little bit scared of that yeah so yeah th- essentially that's the reason it's, it's for security reasons but Right. You know, I, I just felt I, I'll be fine. Like, you know, you, you do play the odds when you travel, but I, I thought it would be it would be okay. Because, again, when I asked people, they said, yeah, just don't go to Turbat, don't go to Panjgu, mm. and everything else is fine. And, you know, that I was, was sticking to the main road. I wasn't going to go deep into some remote valley. So yeah. I thought it would be fine. Very quickly before we finish in Pakistan, would those two groups, the, the Taliban and, and the BL Liberation yeah. Army, yeah. Would they would they fight each other or would they work together? Um, I've actually read. I, I was curious about this, so I've I've read about it, and they don't really converge because they have um, there are two different areas of operation as well. The the Pakistani Taliban are mostly active in the northern area of Baluchistan yeah. near the Afghanistan border. Yeah. Whereas the Baluchistan Liberation Army are mostly active. Uh, in the center, more in the interior of Baluchistan. So okay. they're not acting in the same uh, areas, but I have heard that they do cooperate. Um, I read an article that said that sometimes the Baluchistan Liberation Army will help the Pakistani Taliban uh, like pass through some mountain passes or hide mm. in some areas. But they're not really friends because they don't, like the, the Pakistani Taliban are Islamist, uh, hardcore, conservative and everything. Yeah. Whereas these other guys, they're just nationalists. They just want to make their own country, but they don't really, uh, <laughs> they don't have an Islamist uh, flavor to them. And the other thing is that the the Pakistani Taliban, most of their members are Pashtun. Yeah. Like, you know, they speak yeah, Pashto. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the other ones, they speak Baluchi. Got it. It's interesting because they, they would help each other to a point, but let's say... For example, hypothetically, that Balochistan got its own independence, then they'd be fighting each other, right? Because they probably won't control exactly. that, that place. Yeah, it's just a bit. Yeah, this it's is all politics. Really, isn't it? the enemy of, 
the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think Pakistan is the common enemy that can kind of see eye to eye and somewhat cooperate. Yeah. And in the moment that Belushisan would somehow become independent, like you said, there, the first thing they'll do is fight each other. So, yeah. It, it was, uh, I wasn't too worried. Well, the Belushisan liberation, I mean, my feeling was that I think they had kidnapped an American in the past and they kept him for a few few weeks, but then they released him. Yeah. Um, I, I just didn't feel like the Baluchistan Liberation Army would uh, like behead me or anything. But maybe that's just my naive, me being naive. But I, it didn't strike me as the kind of group that would just, you know, behead people for the fun of it, like ISIS would do, for example. Uh, that being said, the BLA uh, targets a lot of Chinese because the oh. Chinese are invested in that area. And they, they have killed some Chinese workers. Uh, so right, okay. so if, if I were Chinese, I would have probably avoided going to i would have not gone to baluchistan because the, yeah. they seem to be their target as a canadian i felt like okay canada has n- done nothing in baluchistan no investment no road nothing at all mm. i don't think they would have seen me as a as a prize like because they, they want china to not invest in baluchistan so they want to kill chinese people to make sure that china pulls out of baluchistan um have you heard of guadar g-w-a-d-a-r no it's a big port so the Chinese are building a huge port on the coast of Baluchistan, Gwadar. Oh, I, and, I can see it on the map, real west towards the border. Oh, that's right. And is that right? Massive investment project, huge, uh, huge project. Um, it's, it's, it's meant to become Pakistan's number one port, even bigger than Karachi. Oh, wow. So, okay. yeah, yeah, they're, they're trying to, to build a, this huge harbor and uh, export and import from there. Yeah. And the Chinese are the ones there. So, yeah, so as a Chinese, I, I wouldn't have uh, have gone but as a canadian i thought oh, they probably don't care about canadians <laughs> i don't think you'll be the target because that they'll be targeting anything with the government right so yeah if the chinese are building something with the government yeah they're the target but a generic right. canadian backpacker just hitchhiking through i don't think there's any value for them to <laughs> take you hostage yeah no I, I, might, <laughs> I, I might actually say something and i don't want to again people you know it's always hard because my stories like i said sometimes they're so extreme that i i feel like some people might think like this guy has drunk too much or what has he smoked but i've actually <laughs> met a guy i've actually met a uh, guy in Huzdar. so Huzdar is uh, k-h-u-z-d-a-r oh, yeah. i say it yeah who, who told me that uh he he was like a couch surfing man so he helped me uh visit the place and he was nice he knew people from what he said that were in the BLA. That's what he told me. So I don't know if he was exaggerating right. or not, but he said he, he knew guys that were in the movement and he was listening to Baluchi nationalistic music. And at some point when we were in the car with him, he told me like the music I'm listening to right now, if the Pakistan army or police stopped me and heard the music yeah. that I'm listening to, they would arrest me. So it was probably some very nationalistic Ooh. sort of BLA music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's uh, that was so I was with him at some point. I was I was thinking about like maybe this guy could kidnap me, you know, if he wanted to. Mm. But you know, it was already too late anyways. Because when, when, once he told me that he knew people in the BLA, I was already with him in his car and everything. And I thought, well, it's too late. Now. I'm <laughs> yeah. already with him. Yeah, you already got there. Yeah. <laughs> and the Crazy. Pakistani Taliban, they I think they would have been more dangerous. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I just I had just gone to Afghanistan and I had, True. of course, seen the Afghan Taliban. And I thought if they Google my name or if I even had pictures on my phone, like if they see that I've just been to Afghanistan and I've seen the Afghan Taliban, I thought, you know, they, they, they might. I don't know if I would have done something, but I do think it might have helped. 
They might have yeah, not because they would have, yeah. yeah, because I wouldn't be just some random tourist. I I, I had been to Afghanistan and the, the government of Afghanistan knew who I was and every and all that stuff. So I felt like maybe um, maybe some strings could have been pulled. I don't know, but I just felt <laughs> like they were going to help. <laughs> ah, interesting. Yeah, I learned something new today about that area. Yeah. I think I, I, I might have seen that quite often mentioned in that group that, you know, the passport my stamp of it is that group. People do mention that area quite a bit, but I never really knew why. So, um, yeah, yeah, there you go. Area. yeah, that's something new. Yeah, that's cool. Anything else you want to say, maybe just for Afghanistan and or Pakistan before we move on to the features? So, okay. So for Afghanistan, I would just say to people, uh, since I don't want to be held responsible if somebody goes, <laughs> you know, disclaimer, uh, unless you really, really know what you're doing and you've got a lot of traveling experience, uh, which some people have, obviously, you know, I would say just hold on, don't go now and wait for things to normalize a bit more, wait for, you know, we don't know if the government will or will not be recognized. But at the moment, you know, my embassy was closed. So if, if I lost my passport, if something happened to me there, um, you know, things can go pretty pretty badly because there's no embassy to help. So, yeah, yeah. you know, unless you're really in a rush, maybe just wait wait a little bit for things to normalize before going. And for Pakistan, you know, great country. Uh, I would say if you want to come to, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking of coming to Pakistan, do it as soon as we can, because it's going to become more popular. And it it's is. Become more yeah. And the Pakistan of 10 years from now will not be the one that, that is now, you know, tourism does change places sometimes for the worse. So really, I think now is the best time to come. Yeah, I think I've heard that recently. I think that it's starting to pick up Pakistan. So um, I went to a webinar actually earlier this year about Pakistan travel, and they're really like saying it's it's turned a corner. It's safe. It's a place that people want to go and travel to now. So exactly, it, it gets uh, you know there's there's sort of a perfect point where you know because initially there's no tourist infrastructure. People think it's dangerous, so it's hard. Then it becomes better and better. And now yeah. I think it's at the sweet spot where. It, there's infrastructure uh, in, enough so that you can travel here easily. Yeah. But it's not too touristy that it becomes annoying and you still feel like you have the whole country to yourself. So it's at the perfect sweet spot because as it's going to get more and more touristy, prices will rise. Locals, unfortunately, will become a bit less friendly and they will see you more through a business perspective. Mm. And, you know, things change. So you might have noticed that, James, right? When you go to a place that's very touristy, usually that's not where you find the nicest locals. Usually oh, that's God, in no. the yeah, 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 100%. Totally agree. They're just there to kind of cater to the industry, right? So, yeah, yeah. you're right. Time, it's, it's really, really, uh, it's still raw enough that you'll enjoy it. It's still adventurous enough for you to have fun, mm. but not too crazy that you don't have to worry about your safety. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Finish off these are your favorite travel things. Hey, yeah. Just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast, and other stuff. Thank you. 
It's travel question time. So uh, you've been to, I think you said earlier, 36 countries, 33, 36? Yeah. Okay, so if you had to pick three countries of those that people must travel to that you've experienced, what three countries would you say? Okay, three that they must travel to that... um, That you travel to, yeah. There's two sides of this. There's the side where I don't want to... And I don't want to like okay like in a hypothetical way where it doesn't ruin the country. Let's say if it, if it could not ruin the country, I would definitely say Afghanistan. Yeah, I would say Taiwan for Asia. Mm-hmm. And number three, I'm torn between Pakistan and uh, Sudan. I would go with Pakistan. I think yeah, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Taiwan. If people absolutely had to, uh, mm-hmm. maybe Uzbekistan as well. Yeah. If people really had three countries that they wanted to see, I would recommend those three. Okay, great. Okay, next question. Do you drink coffee? No, I, I almost always drink water, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to change this question a little bit then. So if you could pick any town or city that you've been to and drink a glass of water and watch the world go by, where would that be? Hmm, if I could, any place in the world and watch the, the world go by, I think it would be that... Um, that mountain uh, in Badkhis province in Afghanistan, where I posted a picture of an ATS, and it's like this Jeep going up a mountain track. Mm-hmm. It's super remote. It's beautiful. It's endless hills everywhere. There's no civilization. It's just small villages here and there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I would just put myself on top of the mountain and drink while looking at the sunrise or sunset. That would be a nice, nice. Uh, experience. If I, if I had to put number two, I would probably put the Buddhist temple in Taiwan that I spoke oh, of Of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. Okay, that's fair enough. You have two there. That's, that's all good. What about three treks or walks that you've done that have been your favorites? Okay, three treks or walks. Um, I, okay, I really liked uh, the Tiger Leaping Gorge trek in China. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, it's, it's, it's like a high trek. And there's a canyon and a river. And there's parts that are quite dangerous. And sometimes I was quite scared of heights and things like that. And usually people do the trek in two days. They break it up in uh, like two, four and a half hours uh, each day. But when I got to the middle of it and I wanted to stay at a guest house, the grandfather of the owner had died and people were mourning and they couldn't really accommodate me. So I ended up doing the whole trek in one day and I was just listening to music the whole time for eight hours. And I really, really liked it. It was meditating. It was great. So Tiger Leaping Gorge would be number one. And then the two other ones, I would say the trek on the Chinese Great Wall, the part where yeah. I told you that was yeah. remote. That was I just imagined myself being like a soldier hundreds of years ago and guarding the wall against uh, <laughs> like barbarians coming from the north. And, you know, yeah. I could just imagine how these guys had lived. And that would be number two, the Chinese Great Wall. And then number three... I did have a trek in Pakistan, uh, Uchwar Peak. Mm-hmm. That was a nice, uh, nice trek. You can see the glaciers and uh, you have a nice view of the surroundings. So yeah, that would be the three: Tiger, tiger Leaping Gorge, Great Wall, Uchwar Peak. Okay, that's great. What about the three countries that you've been to where they're the easiest to hitchhike? Okay, the top three countries that are the easiest to hitchhike. Yeah, I would say Taiwan. Taiwan would be there is very easy to hitchhike in. Mm-hmm. Pakistan, very easy. And number three, Ethiopia was very easy. Oh, okay. Throw that one in there. We'll talk about that in another episode. But that's great. That's awesome. Okay. And what about a favorite beach? Have you seen some cool beaches? Like 
Anyone sticks in your mind? Okay, favorite beach. Yes, there's a nice beach in the in the southeast of Taiwan, uh, near the, the the very edge of it, the south southernmost point. Mm-hmm. And there's very high waves, and uh, it's it's quite relaxing. You can chill there. It's quite it's quite nice. So I would say Taiwan, uh, the south southeastern corner. That's great. And I've got here, cool, this might be a difficult one, so I'll give you two two favorite landmarks. Two favorite landmarks. But a mm. landmark, uh, you mean uh, man-made or...? Either man-made or nature. I would say the Rajasthan in Samarkand, uh, Uzbekistan. Yeah. Stunning piece of architecture. Definitely stunning. Um, beautiful. Uh, you look at it and you're struck. And then Bandamir National Park in Afghanistan, the, the lakes... The bluest mm-hmm. water I've seen, and uh, as a natural landmark, that would be that would be the one. Nice. Okay. What about a top three favorite dishes that you eat in on the travels? Top three. Yeah. Hmm. Give me a choice here. Okay. I love Chinese dumplings called baozi. I, I don't pronounce it well. My Chinese is not good, but something like baozi. Yeah. Uh, so that would be the first one. Then the second one, Uzbek pilov. So the stewed uh, fried rice with uh, meat and vegetables of Uzbekistan. Okay. I like stinky tofu in Taiwan. They have this tofu that they ferment a lot. And oh, okay. It smells horrible. Yeah. It smells horrible, but when you eat it, it's really good. Do you like tofu? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really, really delicious uh, okay. once you eat it. What about a country as a whole, their food, like as a cuisine? What country has been your favorite? Oh, definitely China. Chinese culture very varied Um, if you like spices you can have spices in certain regions Um, actually there's a special dish I recommend everybody to try if they go to China it's the Sichuan hot pot and it's uh, a hot pot with all kinds of meat and definitely try try that out if you go to China nice okay which country has the friendliest locals that you experienced as somebody who's been to so many nice countries it's always uh a yes, tough because uh, now there's a tie in my mind between afghanistan sudan and i want to put a non-islamic country so i'll put taiwan because they were very very nice okay. um so i i would say i think afghanistan beats them all in terms of the, of, hosp- of night kindness yeah uh, yeah i would say uh i would say afghanistan but uh, close close call with uh taiwan <laughs> and Okay. If you could pick one country to live in that you've not lived in before, where would you live? If I could live in a country that where, where I've never lived before for yeah. a few years or forever? Yeah, for a few years. Um, I'd like to live in... in uh, it could, does it have to be a place that I've been to before? No, or can it be, no, it could uh, be anywhere. Yeah. I think uh, I'd like to live in one of those Pacific islands like uh, the Solomon Islands or maybe Papua New Guinea, some of the out-of-the-way islands that are hard to reach because I'm curious to see what is uh, life like there. Mm. So I'd probably I'd probably pick a, a yeah Pacific island something like uh, the Solomon Islands for example. Okay, that's cool. Somewhere for a few years, I'd write a book, you know. You oh yeah, stay there and live a dream. <laughs> yeah, that would be dreamy. Okay, what about a favorite or two? You have two here. Favorite lake? You must have seen quite a few here. Yeah. Okay, well, Bandamir, the one that I mentioned yeah. with Afghanistan, the National Park, it's really nice. Uh, it's it's actually seven lakes connected, like pearls, and I. Oh wow! I couldn't swim because it was too cold. It was December, but if you go in summer, like I would just want to jump in there and have the swim of my life. 
Yeah. So that would be the, the first one. Isiko Lake in Kyrgyzstan is quite nice. It was too cold when I went, but I think if you go in the summer, it's called Isikul. It's near yeah. a town called Karakol. It's, there's a town in the east called Karakol, K-A-R-A-K-O-L. And the lake is, is quite big. Yeah, I saw that and on the map. Quite, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think people would like, uh, if you want a nice swim and just relax on the shore of the lake, that's a, a nice place to, to chill. Okay, cool. And what about a country that you travel to that's been the best value for your money? So where has your dollar gone the furthest? Okay, where has my dollar gone the furthest? Okay, well, so it doesn't have to be necessarily the cheapest. It can just be the best quality for... Like, yes, best value. Quality, quality counts in, right? Yeah. I would say Tanzania. That was recently there. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, I was thinking, oh, it's Tanzania. It's going to be expensive. It's East Africa, blah, blah, blah. Crazy affordable for like six US dollars. You can get a, a very comfortable double bed that's actually clean with a mosquito net, with a clean toilet. Um, and it's, it's not like a bad bed, you know, it's, it's, it's like a high quality room and very large bed for like five or six bucks. Plus the toilet is clean which is rare in africa <laughs> and you can get like 12 bananas for like 40 cents oh <laughs> what i'm not even kidding like 12 huge bananas for four, yeah. for literally 40 cents it's it's very affordable the food is is healthy i haven't been uh poisoned i haven't had any stomach issues mm-hmm. so yeah tanzania would be uh would be one where your dollar is uh giving you good quality stuff Okay, and just an okay extra question for that. Then, what is the cheapest country that you've experienced? So, not not value, but just cheapest. Okay, um, in terms of purely like my daily spending being the cheapest. Yeah, uh, but do I does does it take into account uh, when locals invite because it brings the budget down, or uh, does it not count? No, trying to imagine if you're just like doing the normal travel, you, you pay for somewhere to stay and right, eat out. Right, and... right. I think I think Afghanistan is. Uh, really cheap mm. um if, if like you can get a if you're willing to <laughs> you can pay like three dollars or, or four dollars and you can get a, a mattress to sleep on and uh like a room and sleep like that um because it would would definitely not be anywhere in east asia that being said sudan was very very cheap i could get a dollar i, I was able to get a dollar a night rooms in sudan but i mean <laughs> rooms like a, a, a terrible bed of course it's just a terrible yeah. bed with yeah. like a terrible room but if you exclude quality yeah uh, i would say yeah i think sudan is uh <laughs> very cheap but you won't get the quality you're looking for <laughs> so good gotta do what gotta do yeah that's not too bad. Okay, they're all your favorite things. Was there any country or, or even regional area that you didn't like that you traveled to? Okay, interesting. So that's a good question. So any area that I didn't like, it can be more yeah. than one, huh? Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I, think, I think it's key to give maybe like a bit of context of places that are not so good because obviously it can't all be good. So, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, well, it's going to sound funny to your listeners. The one I'm in right now, which is Oshakati, Namibia, I'm not a huge fan of it. I feel like uh, people in that region haven't been the friendliest. And it's, I don't know, there's a strange vibe in the air, strange, maybe racial tension. I'm not sure what it is, but I um, I can't say I'm a huge fan of the, the region I'm in now. Not all of Namibia, but specifically Oshakati, the sort of northwestern part. Okay. I did not like Lusaka, the capital of Zambia. Really disliked it. Like, I think okay. that's my most... The, the city I most disliked of all my trips was Lusaka. Ah. 
kind of crammed, jammed, not interesting, not really pretty. Um, just didn't like it. So yeah, Lusaka. Yeah. The favorite capital city of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, otherwise, because I know there's more. I was not a fan of Hong Kong. I was not a fan, but that could also be because I just arrived and it was the first place. But I thought it was bad value for money, expensive, yeah. crammed, no real culture. It was just a big Asian New York more like expensive and then uh, and then you get into mainland china and then you get into the villages and then finally ah, you can breathe and feel like it's much more interesting but yeah hong kong was not my thing at all okay. i was not a fan and maybe i can always add another one yeah one more. Say, look i'll even say south korea and i uh, oh, wow. might offend people <laughs> but yeah I, yeah well there's parts of korea that, korea that i liked uh mostly yeah. the again the countryside and villages but I would say the cities, it was, the, the culture was not there. I just felt like it was this sort of materialistic consumer country where everything was about, um, it, was, it felt fake. You know, everybody had, not everybody, sorry, but a lot of people had plastic surgeries. And, oh, God. Um, hmm. it, it just like, it's actually one of the, I think it's the country with the most plastic surgeries per capita or something ridiculous like this. And crazy. It, it didn't feel genuine. It was the complete opposite of a place like Afghanistan, for example, or even a place like Taiwan, which is in the same region. Yeah. Which actually, like Taiwan had authenticity to it. It had the Taoist temples. It had the the Buddhist temple I went to. The people felt more genuine, the way they dressed. They didn't, they didn't wear that much makeup. They, they didn't seem to have plastic surgeries. Whereas in Korea, it just felt, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Mm. it. It just felt empty and like soul is called soul, but it felt soulless. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, you, you could end on that. <laughs> it feels so. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Okay. People were still in the countryside, great people, no complaints about that. But uh, in the city, you, you just felt like, uh, yeah, I don't know, yeah, maybe too westernized or something like that. Okay, interesting. I've actually got one extra question, then I've got the final question. Um, uh-huh. The extra question is quite an easy one. So what's on your hit list? Let's say three countries that you really want to travel to, but you've not been to before. What's in the top three? Okay, top three that I haven't been to, but I want to go to. Yeah. I would say Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. before it gets ruined <laughs> i keep having that theme of countries getting yeah. ruined, but yeah yeah I, I do think papua new guinea is one of those countries that's still not too bad but that in the future people will go to more and more yeah so i want to see that one i would like to see libya okay and i would like to see if, if my parents are listening they'll probably be worried but whatever uh i would say I, iraq opened up recently i don't want to see yeah. it before it gets yeah, yeah so uh, iraq before it's too late papua new guinea and then libya uh, okay. So yeah, most most of the places are in Asia, and uh, I'm not too interested in Latin America for now. Uh, I'm sure okay. I can, I'll go later. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I would say that. That's, that's and maybe Nigeria. I, I'd love to see Nigeria at some point. Cool, huge country, isn't it, Nigeria? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. Okay, and I do finish this question. This is the same for everyone who comes on. So, why should someone go traveling? So what? bits of advice or bits of wisdom can you share as to why someone should make the leap and go and travel? Okay, well, I think the first reason is that traveling teaches you a lot about yourself. You get to learn a lot about yourself. You know, Socrates, the famous philosopher, said, know thyself. And I think when you travel, you're always putting yourself in situations where you get to know who you are, how you react to things. Mm -hmm. You know, one day it's 
stressful, you're dealing with a thing. The next day you're being ripped off by a, a merch and the next day you're having a great hike with somebody and it's, it's amazing. So you're always in different situations and you're putting yourself out there and it teaches you a lot about yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses. And I learned a lot about myself, you know, okay, this, I react to this type of stress and I do well in this type of environment and these are my skills and these are the weaknesses I have. So the first thing is traveling, especially if you're doing it solo and if you're trying to get out there and, mm -hmm. and don't just follow the tourist crowd, but, you know, put yourself out of the comfort zone. You'll learn a lot about yourself and you'll get to know who you are. So that's the first thing. Yeah. And the second thing is it gives you an understanding of the world that no book or no teacher will ever be able to give you. So no matter how much you read, no matter how many mm -hmm. geography books or history books you read or how many classes you take, there's a limit to it. And there's a limit to the amount of information that you'll get from this. Whereas if you go to a place and you, you talk directly to the people and you experience it firsthand, it's, it's always going to be like the chocolate comparison that I gave. It doesn't matter how much you study the picture of the chocolate until you've tasted it. You can't really know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Spent ages just looking at the pic. Okay. This bit of chocolate looks like this and, Oh, I wonder how it tastes and this, but you've got to just put it in, the, in your mouth and you'll know. So, you know, you can study China for 15 years and you'll know a lot of things, but once you go, you'll see that it's, it's still going to surprise you. Yeah. So it, it makes you, it gives, I think it's uh, the best way to get uh, wise and to have firsthand information on, uh, on what happens in, in the world. And maybe that, that links to the third thing, which would be, it gives you perspective. Yeah. You know, you, you, you start to realize, okay, maybe in the West we think like this, but these people think like that. And these other guys think like that. And then you start to realize that there's different points of views. So it opens up your mind. I would just add that um, if, if any of your listeners are cursed to they want to travel, but they're scared, uh, I will just say, tell them that everybody has been scared at some point. And I was as well when I started traveling, you know, you're worried about what's going to happen and you don't know, and you, oh, should I go? Am I going to get robbed or something like this? But you just have to take a leap of faith and go. Mm -hmm. And you'll soon realize that most people are nice, are friendly, and that uh, television isn't necessarily reality. You won't just be... <laughs> You won't be killed. Uh, I mean, there's always risk out there, but it's not as bad as people think it is. Um, the, the risk is usually lower than what the news says. So don't be too scared. Awesome. Okay, Frank, thanks for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you again for the second time. And I yeah. think we are going to chat again, maybe in a few weeks or, or a few months after your Africa Absolutely. portion, but it's been great to chat to you. It's been, I've learned so much on this podcast episode. Uh, thank you. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I'll ask you to finish off of all the countries that we've talked about today, which one would be the top uh, on top of your list to go to if you had to, to take one? Pakistan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. Even when you talk about Africa, that's it's on the list, but I think Pakistan is too entrenched in my sort of like top five, if you like, of place to go to next. I think it's, it's, it's up there for me. Right. And what would you say? You mentioned Taiwan. Would you say that's also... Uh, your list but a little below yeah taiwan is definitely up there it might be a bit easier because it's smaller so i might be i might be able to do that a bit better because pakistan i think on its own is a trip right you're there for six months won't you so yeah, yeah it's, it takes time before, but it's it's worth it yeah so i think taiwan i just i, I know so many taiwanese people here they're so nice so yeah i want to go check out the people yeah if you ever go to pakistan and you end up in darkwood that would be very funny. <laughs> yeah imagine saying the same the same place <laughs> the same guy with the same motorbike and he yeah. a picture of me <laughs> Oh, that'd be yeah, that, that'd be funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm really enjoy, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was great, and I'm looking forward to uh, to keep in touch. 
Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.